0: And the lights go on again. Chapter 7
1: Flame on, fuzzy scum!
0: Johnny shouted,
1: bright orange flames roaring to life around him, and Steve winced inwardly. Over a month, and the kid still wasn't taking this seriously. From the corner of his eye, he saw one of the Argonians bringing a ray gun to bear on him, and he brought his shield up, covering his face. The plasma bolt splashed harmlessly against the metal. "'Kid, will you for once try to pretend you've got some class?' Ben Grimm's voice carried even in the midst of battle, even when he wasn't trying to be particularly loud." The air around Steve was thick with plasma bolts and gunfire. Their third-hand connection with the Kingpin, via Daredevil, had borne fruit in the form of a case of handguns and semi-automatic weapons, all of them, unsurprisingly, without serial numbers. Steve had handed the guns out to the newer, non-superpowered members of the Resistance—a ragtag collection of firemen, policemen, three surviving National Guard troops, and one vaguely familiar man Steve was certain he'd once seen wearing a Hydra uniform. And they were using them with gusto now, particularly the three Guard troops, who were firing at the Argonians with a kind of wild, vindictive glee." Steve threw himself forward, ducking a blow from an Argonian's tail, the blade scything through the air over his head, then came back up, slamming his shield into its side hard. He felt something crunch, and the Argonian staggered back with a hiss, clutching at its ribs. Then two more of them were on him steve's world became a dance of knives tail barbs and fists and he barely noticed when one of his attackers disappeared abruptly hoisted into the air by justice's telekinesis and slammed into a bridge pylon within moments another argonian had taken its place he had the uneasy feeling that they were in over their heads they hadn't anticipated so many argonians at the checkpoint hadn't planned for it Their intelligence had projected around two dozen guards, and Steve had mentally added another twelve or so to that, anticipating that Carol and Wanda's attack on the Manhattan Bridge subway line yesterday would cause an increase in security, but his estimate had been too conservative. There were at least four dozen Argonian warriors here. Simon and Firestar were meeting the Argonian's counterattack energy blast for energy blast, but there were only two of them against a sea of the aliens. He should have waited for Carol, Jan, and Wanda to rejoin them. Spider-Man, too. An Argonian came at Steve with its blade, and Steve threw himself backwards, catching his weight on his free hand and kicking up to send the short, curved sword flying. They didn't have to hold out much longer, just long enough for Sam to make it through the shield and find some kind of cover. Then he could order everyone to pull back. They didn't actually have to win this fight, just survive it. Steve knocked an Argonian's feet from under it and twisted aside just in time to mostly avoid the blow with its tail as it tried to sideswipe him. The end of its tail caught him in the ribs, hard enough that it staggered him and was going to leave bruises, but the tail barb skidded harmlessly over his costume, the angle too shallow for it to penetrate the tough leather and mail. Two or three hard punches, and the Argonian stopped moving. The air was thick with the choking scent of burned fur, and then someone screamed, and the charred fur smell was overlaid by the sickening smell of burned flesh." Overhead, the circular gap in the shield was still open, just visible as a circle of pure blue against the violet-tinged sky. They had caught the Argonians just as a convoy of Argonian soldiers had been about to exit the city, and everything depended on keeping them too distracted and busy to close the hole in the shield again. The entire thing had been carefully planned out. The Argonians sent a convoy through the shield every other day, either at midnight or at high noon. They rotated the location, sometimes entering and exiting the shield, over the verrazzano Bridge, sometimes over the George Washington Bridge, and sometimes roughly over the Lincoln Tunnel but they changed location on a predictable pattern, not randomly, and so it had taken only a little work to pinpoint the time of their next convoy, and that they would be sending it through over the George Washington Bridge. Steve and the others were supposed to distract the Argonians long enough for Sam and Redwing to slip through the opening in the shield unnoticed, whereupon Sam would try to locate any organized resistance that remained outside the shield. The Argonians couldn't have wiped out both the entire U.S. military and all of S.H.I.E.L.D. There had to be someone out there for Sam to make contact with. There had to be. The alternative was unthinkable. One of the National Guard troops was down, the source of the burned flesh smell. Justice was kneeling by his body, a look of horror on his face. "'Focus, Avenger!' Steve yelled at him but then an Argonian was shooting at him again and he didn't see whether Justice actually listened or not. Sam was overhead now, heading for the shield. Firestar, Simon, and Johnny had redoubled their attack. Their role in this was to be distractions, to keep attention away from Sam, and they were giving it their all. One of the ex-policemen was kneeling next to Steve in a classic shooter's stance now, gun held in both hands, firing at the Argonian's. "'It was a textbook shooting-range technique. "'Alvarez admitted to Steve before leaving for this mission "'that he never actually fired his gun at another person before, "'despite spending seven years on the Force. "'Ben had waded into the thick of the Argonians "'and was laying out all around him with his fists, "'oblivious to their swords, blades, and stingers. "'Sam folded his wings and dove for the hole in the shield, "'a red, white, and silver streak,' and then he was through, red-wing a smaller streak beside him. Time to pull back. Steve opened his mouth to say so, and then an Argonian came charging at them, notched sword swinging. He brought his shield up to throw, and then another Argonian was firing at him. He swung his shield around to catch the plasma bolt just in time, the heat from it nearly singeing his eyebrows off. And the Argonian with the sword charged past him, twisted away from Steve's kick as fluidly as a cat, and took Alvarez's head off in one clean stroke. The blood went everywhere, spattering all over the ground, the Argonian, and Steve. Alvarez's body crumpled to the ground, and Steve launched himself at the Argonian. They both went down, the Argonian lashing at him with its tail, and Steve grabbed the flailing appendage with the hand that wasn't holding his shield and forced the tail blade back around until it was nearly touching the Argonian's throat. The Argonian beat at him with the hilt of its sword, slamming the weapon into Steve's ribs and shoulders. He ignored it. Fall back, Steve shouted, with what breath he could spare. Sam was through and they were close to being overwhelmed. They had taken too many casualties already. The Argonian was fighting him for all it was worth and his arms were starting to ache from holding it still. Hold on, Justice's voice. I've got you. Steve glanced up involuntarily to see two Argonians go sailing through the air, surrounded by the faint purple glow of Justice's telekinesis as they were removed from the fight. Steve didn't see which Argonian fired. He only saw the plasma bolt that caught Justice in the center of the chest. The Argonian underneath him snarled something, but Steve only heard it distantly. Justice hit the ground limply, obviously dead, and somewhere... Firestar was screaming. The Argonian writhed and locked one hand around Steve's throat, sword abandoned in favor of the claws that were now digging into his skin. Steve threw all of his weight against the thing's tail, shoving the tailblade into its throat. Hot blood splashed across Steve's face, stinging his eyes, and the Argonian went still. Firestar was still screaming. Steve rose to his knees, wiping the back of his hand across his face to clear away the blood, and then there was a flood of bright light, and the smell of burning was suddenly overpowering. Searing heat hit him like a wall, so intense that his eyes hurt, and it was suddenly impossible to breathe. Angie, stop it! Simon was shouting. We have to go! Angela, do you want to kill Cap and the firemen too? The light and heat faded. Steve staggered to his feet, blinking away tears, and grabbed the nearest human, one of the firemen, by the arm, pulling him upright as well. "'Run!' he snapped. The Argonians were blinking their huge, black eyes dazedly, temporarily blinded by the intensity of Firestar's blast. This was their chance to get out of here. "'Carol would have been useful right about now,' Steve thought distantly." Simon had his hands full with Firestar, and Johnny couldn't carry any passengers when he flew. When the remnants of his team hit solid ground again, leaving the bridge and the Argonians, just beginning to recover their vision if the plasma bolts now searing through the air after them were any sign, behind, Ben had one of the policemen draped over his shoulder bleeding, but conscious, guns still held in the white-knuckled grasp. Two of the firemen were leaning on each other, both limping. We can't leave Mark, one of the soldiers protested. You're not supposed to leave. We don't have a choice. Ben interrupted, voice as gentle as a seven-foot pile of rock could make it. He wouldn't want you to die trying to bring his body back. But, the soldier protested, he was painfully young, probably barely old enough to drink. Come on. The other guardsman took him by the arm. It's time to split. He turned to Steve. See the rest of you at home base when the Argonian response has died down. Simon, Steve said, go with them. The non-superhero resistance members had thrown their support in with the Avengers for this mission and paid for it in blood. The least he could do was send somebody with powers out with them to watch their backs. Simon nodded. He had reverted back to his normal non-ionic form, making him a less obvious target, even in his bright red coat. Now he pulled his sunglasses out of his breast pocket and slid them on, completing the transition from Wonder Man to Ordinary Person. I'll see you around. He hesitated, then. The falcon got through, Cap. We did what we came here for. It's... The rest isn't your fault. Steve nodded grimly, not sure what his face looked like. Assigning blame didn't make things any easier. The non-superheroes, Steve generally thought of people who weren't wearing costumes as civilians, but these men were anything but, melted away down a side street, Simon bringing up their six, with the injured fireman leaning on his shoulder, and Steve was left alone with Ben, Johnny, and Angela. Let's go home, people he said, suddenly feeling terribly tired. The walk back to the Waldorf Astoria took over two hours, twice as long as it normally would have, because Steve took them on a long, circuitous route to avoid leading any Argonian pursuit back to their main base. Hank was waiting for them in the hotel room, along with Jan, returned from her part in the train job without a scratch on her. Jan jumped up to her feet when they entered, face alight with curiosity and welcome, then stilled, her expression of welcome changing to one of horror. Oh my god, Steve, are you all right? You're covered in blood. Where's Vance? Hank asked. Did the falcon get through? Angela burst into tears. Steve felt frozen, not sure what he was supposed to do, what he was supposed to say. He there were casualties. It's it's not my blood. Frank and Valeria were standing in the doorway to the living room, looking very small and frightened. Valeria began to cry loudly, and Franklin grabbed her hand, scrubbing the back of his other hand across his eyes. Ben and Johnny rushed over to them, each taking a child and carrying them out of the room. The sound of Valeria's wailing receded. Steve stood there, feeling useless, his costume covered in tacky, dried blood, while Angela threw both arms around Jan and buried her face in her shoulder. He wanted to be a hero, she sobbed. He's the one that wanted to join your stupid team in the first place. I, Steve started. Steve, Jan said. I've got this. Hank, take Steve and make him go clean up. Hank nodded at the doorway to the master bedroom, and Steve obediently followed him through it and into the cavernous bathroom beyond it. Jan was right, he thought, as he caught a glimpse of himself in the massive vanity mirror. He was covered in blood. It had dried in his eyebrows and between the edges of the scales on his mail shirt, which was going to take hours to clean. It would have to be done, though, or the mail would rust. Steve pulled the cowl back, the blood soaked leather peeling reluctantly away from his skin, only to discover that he had blood in his hair as well, from where it had seeped under the edges of the mask. He turned away, back to Hank, not wanting to look at his reflection any longer. He looked strange, not like himself. If the face that had looked back at him from the mirror had been a soldier under his command, he would have given the guy three days of leave and sent him back behind their lines to the rear to rest before he cracked. So, Hank said awkwardly, his voice abruptly shattering the silence, "'You just saw a kid you felt responsible for get killed right in front of you, and I'm really hoping that's not his blood you've got all over your face.' If I leave you in here, I'm not going to come back to find you huddled in the corner of the shower having some kind of flashback or breakdown, am I? Steve just looked at him. No, he finally said, when Hank kept staring at him, unnervingly silent. He didn't have the luxury of falling apart right now, and he had kept himself together through worse— It was far from the first time he'd killed someone, even in hand-to-hand combat, and far from the first time he'd seen someone he was fighting beside die. He had hated it then, and he hated it now, but there were no other options, and crying about it would do no one any good. He was in charge, and he needed to stay calm and in command of himself for the sake of the others. Good, Hank said after a moment because talking Tony out of the shower that one time is not something I ever want to repeat. I'll just, um, go now. Steve didn't ask. He didn't want to know. He started to pull his leather and mail shirt over his head, but the time he had it off, Hank was gone. The shower was hot, and the blood made brownish-pink swirls against the marble as it washed away. He'd never actually ordered people to their deaths before. There had always been someone else higher up giving the order during the war. Vance had looked surprised when the plasma bolt caught him. He truly hadn't thought that he could get hit, could die. Spider-Man and Johnny were kids, too, but they had been superheroes as long or longer than Steve. Vance had still been a rookie, inexperienced. Someone had left clean clothes out for him while he was in the shower, and Steve put them on gratefully. There were no shoes or socks, though, so he left the bathroom barefoot, his boots in one hand. Angela was still crying on Jan's shoulder, the two of them sitting on the couch in the parlor, and Hank was nowhere to be seen. Carol and Wanda weren't back yet, debriefing Jan was out of the question at the moment, and he wasn't about to take Johnny and Ben away from the children right now. It had been days since he'd written a letter to Tony. He'd been too busy planning the bridge assault and coordinating things with the new resistance members. He suddenly found himself assailed with an intense longing to hear Tony's voice, to have Tony talk to him and put a hand on his shoulder and tell him it wasn't his fault in a way that he actually believed. Somehow, Tony could always do that. Sam was good at it, too, but Sam was gone now. Thor and Wanda weren't here, and Clint was stuck underground with the Argonians, too, right beside Tony. He couldn't afford to mention any doubts to people under his command anyway. But he could tell them to Tony. And maybe, if Jan could get a letter to him soon, he might even get lucky and get a response back quickly this time. Tony's letters were too few, too infrequent, and always far, far too short, Steve had never expected to find himself missing him so much, but then, he had never been so completely cut off from him before either. Even when Tony had been on the other side of the country, there had always been phone calls, visits, Avengers missions. The only time Steve had truly gone months without seeing him before was when Tony had been drinking and had dropped off the radar for weeks and then hidden from the rest of the Avengers for months afterward. He missed Tony's smile, and the way he talked with his hands when he was explaining some complex engineering issue Steve only barely understood, but which Tony was discussing with him as if he were a fellow professional anyway. If he closed his eyes, he could almost see Tony's hands, long fingers covered in tiny white scars from years of working with metal could see the sharply cut cheekbones, the almost ridiculously long eyelashes, the blue eyes that were so startlingly pale against the rest of his coloring, the strong lean lines of his body, all long limbs and unexpectedly well-defined muscle. Tony had been his friend and teammate for years, for reasons that had nothing to do with his physical attractiveness, but Steve was honest enough to admit to himself that he had always enjoyed looking. Right now, though, he'd settle for just the chance to hear Tony's voice over the radio, to be able to talk to him directly, instead of relying on the stunted and delayed communication that was all letters allowed him. I've been telling myself that the risks and losses were worth it in order to get word out to S.H.I.E.L.D. and whatever may remain of the American government, he found himself writing some minutes later. But I can't shake the fear that maybe there's no one out there— Maybe they really have conquered everything, and have sent Sam out to face them all with only Red Wing for backup, all for nothing. The attack on Penn Station had gone almost perfectly, the attack on the train better than he had expected. Had he gotten overconfident? Allowed them to go into this without enough preparation? Half the people who'd been out there today had had next to no experience with this kind of situation— He should have tried to get some of the infantrymen from Fort Hamilton to come across the river and help. I don't know what to say to Firestar. An apology would be meaningless. Justice made his own choices, and to apologize for leading him to his death would demean that. Justice had gone out there as an avenger, as a soldier. They all knew the risks involved, and he had chosen to take them. Maybe he hadn't really believed that it might happen to him, but he had still made the choice but I still feel responsible. How many more kids am I going to watch die, Tony? If you were here, you would tell me to stop brooding and that it wasn't my fault, which would be the height of hypocrisy, by the way, since you always try to shoulder the blame for everything. I wish you were here to talk me out of this stupid funk or spar with me to distract me from it. It's harder than I thought it would be doing this without you. It was your theories on the way the Argonian's shield functioned that let us come up with the plan in the first place, you know. It never occurred to any of us that opening up a gap in the shield was even possible. We had been assuming the ship's phased through the shield somehow, and that the only way in and out was to be in physical contact with an Argonian vessel. When this is over, remind me to buy you dinner. Steve.
2: Tony crumpled Steve's letter into a loose ball and, making sure his body shielded from the sight of the rest of the room, turned on the tiny welding torch he'd been given for performing maintenance work on Argonian ship engines and held it under the paper, until it had been reduced to a small pile of ash. As Steve said, he wasn't taking any chances. He had held out for three months in Afghanistan, just over two months in Argonian hands, and he had already built them a nuclear missile. Granted, they didn't yet have the nuclear material to make the missile operational, but that's what the team of kidnapped physicists at their second lab location was for. One of them was probably completing the work Tony had begun right now, hoping all the while that no one on the engineering and systems side of things had cracked the missile's guidance system. Now they had him repairing their machinery— and cannibalizing the cold-fusion power cores from damaged plasma guns to build new ones. Things he had refused to do under torture once upon a time. And now he was doing them just because Izemud asked him to, like a good little collaborator. They had also assigned him to help Gruenwald with the particle accelerator he was building from scratch, which had been an interesting experience. Tony had been so eager to finish the job and get away from Gruenwald's vocal contempt, that he hadn't even enjoyed the challenge and hadn't thought to try and stall. Every now and then, Izimud would bring him pieces of technical diagrams and ask Tony where the mistakes in them were. He tried to avoid pointing out more than half of them, but he was never sure how much evasion he could get away with, never certain how much of the questioning was sincere and how much was Izimud testing him. They had tortured one of the physicists last month, A Dr. On, one of the people the Argonians had captured right out of their cells at Rikers. Tony had heard the rhino describing it to one of the other scientists. On had been made an example after Izumud had informed his superiors of Tony's revelations about isotopes, a warning to them to stop concealing information. If Tony corrected the wrong error, he might cost some other, braver scientist his life. He sighed, and returned to a study of what, as far as he could determine, seemed to be a cross-sectional diagram of part of an Argonian spaceship's propulsion system. The print was so small in places, it made his eyes hurt. Argonians had greater visual acuity than humans, at least in low light, and completely indecipherable, since it was written entirely in angular Argonian lettering. The anonymous Argonian mechanicus they'd had draw the things— Had the makings of a talented draftsman, though, especially considering that he'd probably had little to no clue of what most of the system's components did. Was he the only person looking at this? If he stalled and gave them half-answers, would he find himself caught out immediately, because some other engineer had already figured out how it worked and told them everything? If he gave them the answers they wanted, would he be revealing some other prisoner's attempt at misdirection? Tony closed his eyes and rubbed his temples with both hands. Exhaustion seemed to drag at him, making his head throb. He was always tired these days. His ribs still hurt when he put too much pressure on them, even though, for the first time in his adult life, he'd actually been out of action and away from the armor long enough to give them a chance to heal completely. He shouldn't still be hurting like this. It had to be in his head. The last time he'd been in a situation like this, he'd been badly injured and had nearly died. He probably ought to be grateful that he wasn't having phantom chest pains. Or could he just be tired because of the looming presence of guards made it impossible to sleep? Hey Barton, what's the matter with you? Did you draw the short straw and pull guard duty in the physicist's dungeon? You know everyone there has the flu, right? That's not funny, Schultz. Connor snapped, his voice hissing slightly on the syllables, the way it always did when he was annoyed. They don't have the flu, they're dying. They aren't using radiation shielding in there, and don't call it the Physicist Dungeon. It's insulting. Tony looked up from his schematics to see Clint walking slowly across the room towards him, one arm cradled against his chest. As he watched, Clint staggered slightly, grabbing for part of the giant converters with his other hand. "'and Tony hurried around his lab bench to meet him. "'He grabbed Clint around the waist, "'just as the other man's knees gave way, "'and he sagged heavily against Tony. "'Clint may have looked small next to Steve, "'but he was only two inches shorter than Tony, "'and years of archery had given him solidly packed muscles "'that made him weigh significantly more than he looked like he should. "'Half dragging, half carrying him the remaining distance to Tony's cot "'took real physical effort.' He meant to ease Clint down gently onto the cot, but Clint chose that moment to come to again, and his attempts to help him in this process caused Tony to lose his grip on him, so that he half fell onto the bed. All the while, Tony was performing a kind of quietly frantic survey of him, looking for blood, bruises, or any obvious injury. The only one he could find was a long, angry-looking scratch down Clint's left arm, where something had torn through the sleeve of his uniform tunic. Was something wrong with him? Was he sick? Hurt? What happened? He demanded. He took hold of Clint's scratched arm, trying to get a closer look at it, and Clint flinched and pulled away. Hurts, he mumbled. Alien bitch hit me. On the head? Tony asked. Clint's pupils were dilated, making his eyes look weirdly dark, and his skin was flushed. His arm, when Tony reached for it again, was hot to the touch. With her tail, Clint said, closing his eyes and looking sick. I don't feel so good. Tony stared at Clint's scratched arm, the long red line of the injury already visibly swollen, and thought of the black scorpion-like barbs that grew from the ends of female Argonian's tails. Some kind of venom, he thought, and felt a little sick himself. Wait. You mean they actually have people working with unshielded radioactive material in there? Schultz's voice rose notably in volume and pitch as he spoke. Tony wanted to turn around and snarl at the man to shut up and stop distracting him. But that would have only drawn more attention to himself and Clint. Radioactive material? Clint's eyes snapped open. I don't have radiation poisoning from a stupid missile, do I? Oh god, you give me radiation poisoning. He sounded as if he were on the verge of hysteria, and Tony, looking at his flushed face, and the beads of sweat forming along his hairline, felt hopelessly out of his depth. "Clint," he said, as calmly as he could manage, "'you do not have radiation poisoning. "'Where was Hank when you needed him? "'Who knew if the Argonian tail-barbed venom even had an antidote, or what kind of effects it had on the human body?' It might be fatal simply because of the fact that it was alien. Some difference in their physiology making something that could be easily the alien equivalent of a jellyfish sting deadly. Oh, good. My arm hurts. And just like that, he was reassured. Since when did Clint listen to him? Is that scratch on your arm from where the Argonian hit you? Tony asked. Maybe he was jumping to conclusions. Maybe Clint was sick, not poisoned. I hate her. Clint mumbled, his tone sullen, and tried to pull his arm away from Tony again. He alone. It's fine. What's wrong with him? Tony jumped, his heart pounding, as Dr. Connors seemed to appear out of nowhere behind him. Having a six-foot-tall crocodile looming over your shoulder was disconcerting even when it wasn't a surprise. I don't know. Clint was trying to sit up again, pushing himself up with his good arm. Tony set one hand against his chest and pressed him back down. Lie down, Clint. I can't. Clint started to struggle, frowning, his voice rising in intensity again. It's almost noon. I have to go see Jan. You don't have to go anywhere, Tony told him. Shut up, Clint, he begged silently. Of all the ways to get caught. Lie down. She'll worry if I'm late, and we need to give Cap your... Clint, Tony snapped. Lie down and be quiet. Surprisingly, Clint complied. There were hectic spots of red on his cheeks, and he was trembling slightly. Perhaps I can help. Is he sick? Poisoned? Does he know what caused this? Tony turned sharply, looking at Connors' scaly green face. Cart Connors might be a reformed supervillain, but he was also a good man and a skilled biologist, and more than intelligent enough to figure out what was going on if Clint let anything else about their undercover status, or his meetings with Jan, slip out. One more incoherent remark from Clint in Connors' hearing, and both of them could be in serious trouble. If the Argonians learned that they were spies... Clint wouldn't get the chance to die from Argonian poison, because he'd be cut into pieces by Argonian soldiers first. And if Connors didn't tell, knowing their secret would put him at risk, too. I can handle it, Connors, he said, loading his voice with all the scorn he usually reserved for Titanium Man or his cousin Morgan when he tried to sponge money off of him, or people he was about to fire because they couldn't comply with basic safety protocols. We've all seen how effective your medical skills are. It was difficult to tell, because reptilian faces weren't exactly expressive. But he thought Connors flinched. It reminded Tony uneasily of Hank when somebody threw Ultron in his face. And Tony wanted to apologize, to take it back, to beg Connors to help him, because Clint could be dying for all he knew, and he had no idea what to do about it. He wasn't a doctor, or a biologist, or even a chemist. The only thing he really knew about medical science was far more about how the human heart worked and the many and varied things that could go wrong with it than he wanted to. Fine, then. Come get me if he gets worse. Connors hissed. Then he turned and walked away, tail lashing behind him like an Argonian's. Clint had closed his eyes and was lying there silently, shivering. Tony pulled his boots off. Tall, polished, black Argonian boots now, instead of the bucket-topped purple ones that went with his costume. Unfastened the front of his uniform tunic, so the high collar wouldn't choke him, and spread a blanket over him. He stood there for a moment, feeling helpless. There had to be something else he could do. Clint needed antivenom, or antihistamines, if this was some allergic reaction to non-Earth biochemicals. And probably an IV drip and all kinds of medical treatment he couldn't provide. The most Tony could do was clean the cut on his arm and get him some water. During his two months in what Clint had begun calling the Mad Scientist Basement, Tony had avoided contacts with the Argonians whenever possible. His stomach felt hollow as he approached the pair of Argonian Mechanicos, standing near the barrier separating the human scientist area of the big man-made cavern, from the banks of modern converters where the power core was located. If you walked too close to the power core, he knew the guards, always Argonian for something this sensitive, would return you to your assigned area by physical force. The mechanicos turned at his approach, and the relief he felt when he realized that one of them was Isimud was probably something he needed to worry about. Later. Right now, It was time to take advantage of the fact that he'd found the one Argonian who would actually listen to him. Tony Stark. Isamud's ear swiveled forward in greeting. Have you completed work on the power core and engine schematics? He asked, ignoring the other Argonian's snarl. I'm working on it. Tony replied automatically, hating himself for how immediate the urge to start offering placating excuses was. That's not why I'm here. One of the guards, the human guards. He didn't say Clint's name if the Argonians hadn't figured out that he and Clint were friends. He wasn't going to hand them any more clues. Is sick. He was scratched by one of your people's stingers, and is having some kind of reaction to it. Oh. Izimut's face cleared, and his tail curved up over his shoulder alertly. Yes, sometimes our tail barbs poison weaker species. Women evolve them to defend their young from predators. It's why women make natural warriors. A good mother, even a mechanikos, can kill just about anything before the venom has a chance to take effect. But there are some very large subterranean predators on Argon. Or, at least, there were. His ears lowered, and Tony felt bad for him for an instant, before he remembered that the Argonian solution to losing their planet had been to come and take over Earth. And then, an instant of sickening hope, "'It struck Tony that if the Argonians knew their tail barbs poisoned people, "'and it wasn't just some allergic reaction to alien proteins, "'then they might have an antidote. "'The question was out of his mouth immediately, without pause for thought. "'Isamud frowned, tail swaying behind him. "'There's no need. Argonians are immune to it.' "'Then he hesitated, one ear flicking backwards. "'That might be an oversight.' but it is generally non-lethal, he told Tony, sounding for all the world as if he were actually trying to reassure him, at least in larger, stronger species. I'm sure your species is sturdy enough to withstand it, especially a warrior. Did you say it was a guard? Tony drew in a deep breath and fought down the desire to say something that would have been inappropriate, not to mention dangerous considering the circumstances. "'I need medical supplies to clean the injury, and water. "'They will be brought to you. "'You should return to your workstation, "'before our Captain Mommy too notices your absence. "'She is short-tempered today.' "'When isn't she?' Tony thought, "'rubbing at the still-healing scar on his cheekbone. "'But he knew better than to say it, even to Izimud, whom "'who clearly didn't like her either. Clint's condition hadn't changed. "'He was semi-conscious, still shivering and sweating.' and had rolled onto his uninjured side, and curled himself into a pathetic little wall. The blanket clutched tight around him. To Tony's surprise, Izumud brought him an Argonian first aid kit himself, only minutes later, and stayed long enough to explain what each item inside did. Then he asked one or two new questions about the schematics, and left again. Once he had gone, Tony cut Clint's sleeve off with a small pair of wire cutters, and began swabbing the now-raised and swollen patch with the Argonian equivalent of an alcohol pad. The first aid kit was little enough, but he felt pathetically grateful for it. He hadn't been able to accept aid from Dr. Connors, but at least he'd been able to get Clint some help. He wasn't entirely useless, he thought, and Clint moaned faintly and tried to pull his arm away again. He just felt that way. It still wasn't enough, though. The poison could be doing anything to Clint. Tony didn't even know what kind of poison it was. It might be shutting down his brain or heart or lungs, attacking his central nervous system, necrotizing the flesh of his arm, or any number of things that he didn't know enough about poisons to think about. There was the sound of heavy footsteps, and Tony glanced over incuriously to see the rhino heading his way, probably bringing Doc Ock or Schultz, who had to be some kind of supervillain. "'though Tony couldn't place his face or name, their lunch. "'Only, instead of stopping by Doc Ock's workstation "'or pausing to chat with Schultz, "'the rhino kept walking until he was standing right there "'in front of Tony's workbench, looming over him. "'Herman said you have a radiation detector,' he announced. "'His voice was deep and slightly rough, "'and he had the remnants of a Russian accent.' just discernible under a thick nasal layer of New Jersey. You could call it that, yes. Tony hedged, wishing with all his heart that the rhino would just go away and leave him alone. He didn't have time for supervillains trying to gang up on him and steal his lab equipment now, or whatever this was about. I want you to use it to check me out. I've been taking Dr. his dinner and... He shook his head. The three-foot horn sprouting from it suddenly looked massive and wickedly sharp. "'You'll check me out with it, or I'll flatten your lab for you.' He glanced over at Clint, where he lay huddled on Tony's cot. "'Is he sick?' "'Never mind him.' Tony gave the rhino his most charming smile. There was about half an hour until noon, when Jen would hopefully be coming to meet Clint in the main concourse." The first aid kit had little vials in it for taking blood samples. If he could get one to Jan, she could take it to Hank. And he could make Clint an antidote. If Clint were still alive by then. I'll check you over with it. But only if you do something for me. I've been down here for weeks. I haven't seen the sun in ages. Get me upstairs for twenty minutes or so. Just long enough to walk around and look out the windows. I'll scan you for contamination when we come back down. The rhino appeared to think about it for a moment, eyes narrowing. It's a deal, he finally said, but if you get caught, I ain't seen you, and I don't know what you're doing up there. Tony nodded, still smiling. Of course. When the clock struck noon, he was standing in the remnants of a restaurant in the station's lobby. A vial of Clint's blood in his pocket, waiting for Jan. The rhino had abandoned him instantly once they hit the ground floor, telling him that he had ten minutes before he came back, and to be there or else. The lobby was filled with sunlight, so bright it hurt his eyes. And he hadn't realized how long it had really been since he'd seen the sun until he stepped into it. How long it had been since he'd been warm. For a moment, Tony resented Clint for getting to come up here every day. Then he remembered that Clint was sick, might be dying now. "'and as he stood there enjoying the sunlight, guilt twisted in his stomach. "'When Jan landed on his shoulder moments later, full of shocked questions, "'he had his head tipped back and his eyes closed, "'luxuriating in the feel of the sun on his face.
3: "'God, was that Tony?' "'It took her a moment to recognize him at first. "'She had been looking for Clint's blond hair and dark uniform,' not dark hair and the gray that all non-military Argonians wore. She had actually scanned the room twice, trying to decide if she should do the safe thing and leave, or wait for Clint to show up, before she realized that the thin man with the dark goatee standing in one of the long bars of sunlight was Tony. Even then she had hesitated, part of her not believing that it was really him, convinced that she had to be seeing things, Then he closed his eyes and turned his face upwards, and there was no more room for doubt. She dove for his shoulder, landing there neatly. Tony? What are you doing here? Where's Clint? Tony jumped slightly, but to his credit didn't turn to look at her. He couldn't come, he said very quietly, barely moving his lips. Look, I blackmailed one of the guards into letting me up here. I have less than ten minutes before I have to go back down. He shouldn't have taken the risk, she said. If Clint couldn't make it, he should have waited and tried again tomorrow. He knows I come again the next day if I fail to make contact. This close, she found herself shocked at how bad Tony looked. He was pale, his face gaunt, and there were dark circles under his eyes like bruises. She crawled inside his collar, tucking herself between the fabric and his neck, the hiding place so familiar by now that it had stopped being claustrophobic. It felt different than hiding against Clint's bare neck did. Less awkward, less intense somehow, though the position was every bit as intimate. Maybe it was because she'd seen Tony naked, so the mystery was already gone. She and Tony had dated briefly, during that miserable period after she'd ended things with Hank, before they'd gotten back together. She'd done much more intimate things with him than simply touching his bare neck. You look awful, she said. Any messages for Steve? Clint's been poisoned by one of the Argonians, he said in a monotone rush. Those stingers they have in their tails are venomous. I have a blood sample here for you to take back to Hank. Clint's been what? A cold knot formed in her stomach. Vance's death had been bad enough. They couldn't lose Clint, too. He couldn't be poisoned. Of course he and Tony were in danger down here, but he'd been meeting with her on a regular basis for over two months without getting caught. The stinger scratched him on the arm, Tony was saying. The wound side is red and inflamed, hot to the touch. I cleaned it as well as I could, but any damage is already done. Symptoms? She heard herself asking. Hank would want to know. Chills, disorientation, sweating, tremors. He was pretty out of it when I left him. He complained that his arm hurt before he passed out. How long ago did it happen? Some poisons worked quickly. She hoped this wasn't one of them. It was something that took hours to take effect, or they might already be too late. An hour, maybe less. Tony shook his head slightly. I think he came straight to me after it happened. That's... not good... Either it's really, really poisonous, or he's having some kind of allergic reaction to it. Hank had been exposed to a variety of insect venoms over the years, and all of them had taken several hours to take effect, except for the infamous funnel-web spider incident, when he'd lost consciousness less than 15 minutes after being bitten, just after Scott Lang had given him a shot of antivenom. That had been during the long, painful period after the divorce, Jan had gone to the hospital anyway, and there had been a screaming argument over arthropods that didn't belong in the Avengers' mansion. She could still remember how washed out he'd looked lying in the hospital bed, an IV in his arm, and thinking how stupid it would be, after years of fighting supervillains, for him to die from a lab accident. I thought of that. He's still breathing properly, though, and anyway, if he were going into anaphylactic shock, he'd already be dead. I asked one of the guards about anti-venom, but they've never made any. Apparently, he said bitterly, Argonians are immune and other species aren't important enough to bother with it. Give me the blood sample, she said, forcing herself to be calm. Panicking wouldn't help Clint. I'll take it to Hank. Can you be back up here at midnight? The Argonian guards would be eating their equivalent of lunch then, and would be less likely to notice Tony skulking around. I don't... Tony's jaw set, and his shoulders went rigid. I'll find a way. Then he stiffened. Damn it, there's the rhino. Go. He reached up with one hand, pretending to scratch his shoulder, and slipped a plastic vial inside his collar. It was big enough that Jan had to wrap both arms around it, and heavy, but she made it to the ceiling in seconds anyway. She was outside of the station, two streets away, and full-size again, before she realized that she hadn't said goodbye. Chapter
0: Eight. Isolating the venom from Clint's blood had been a time-consuming and tricky procedure. Only a very small amount of the toxin was present in the sample, and at least half of what Hank knew thus far had come from analyzing the effects it had had on Clint's blood chemistry. Rather than the toxin itself. Like most earth based biotoxins, it was a combination of protein enzymes and probably functioned predominantly as neurotoxin when used on life forms from the Argonian's homeworld, with some addition of mild necrotoxin effect. In Clint's case, however, judging by the histamine levels in his blood, it had also provided a mild allergic reaction. They were just lucky. Clint wasn't allergic to bee stings, or he would probably have gone into anaphylactic shock immediately. So what is it, and what's it going to do to him? Steve demanded. And can you make an antidote? It's technically called an antivenom, and yes, I can. It was going to take days, possibly as long as a week or more, especially given that he had no direct sample of the venom to derive an antivenom from and no test subjects but given enough time hank knew he could do it time however was not something they had on their side in these circumstances it won't do us any good though even if i could have it ready in an hour it would be too late at this point for it to do any good it's been too long since he was stung steve stared at him blankly not hank gasped because he actually didn't understand but because he didn't want to understand Steve was very good at denial when he wanted to be, and he liked problems to have simple, effective solutions, preferably ones that involved hitting people. He knew that it wasn't an entirely fair assessment, but Hank hadn't had the opportunity to hit anything, and he was starting to feel more than a little bitter about it. The worst part was that he had actually felt a moment of exhilarated relief when Jan had come bursting into the hotel suite, shouting that Clint had been poisoned with some alien substance— "'because it meant that here, finally, was a chance for him to be useful, "'a challenge to keep him from going slowly crazy with boredom. "'Clint was probably in agony. "'Hank's analysis had also turned up traces of serotonin in the venom, "'which meant that the injury itself would be extremely painful, "'and he was pleased to have something important to do. "'There were times when Hank didn't like himself very much.' "'Antivenom has to be administered within a specific time frame, "'usually a very short time frame. "'Simon, leaning against the wall behind Steve, "'made a noise that sounded like someone attempting to muffle the words funnel web spider, behind a cough, and not succeeding.' "'Like a funnel web spider. Exactly. "'Though given that Clint was still alive when Tony took the blood sample from him, "'the window of opportunity is probably longer than forty minutes.' "'Still alive?' "'Jan, who had been flying in nervous and slightly distracting circles around the room, froze, hovering in midair. "'It's not going to kill him, is it?' "'Steve's jaw tightened, and his shoulders went stiff. "'No,' Hank said patiently. "'It's not going to kill him. "'I don't know how toxic it was to things on their home planet.' "'but for humans, it would take either an injection of venom "'directly to the neck or torso, "'or multiple stings to cause death. "'Since Clint just got a scratch on the arm, "'it'll just make him miserable for a while.' Jan landed on the makeshift lab table, "'visibly relieved, and Steve visibly relaxed. "'How miserable?' he asked, frowning. "'Fever, chills, headache, muscle tremors.' It's kind of like a combination of extra-nasty stingray venom and something else I haven't identified yet, composed of several different enzymes, including something I've named Argo serotonin. This time, he got three blank stares. It's nearly identical to serotonin, except for a few variations in molecular structure. It's probably why he told Tony that his arm hurt. Serotonin causes smooth muscle contractions, and intense pain when injected into muscles or skin. Clint wouldn't actually die, but he would probably feel like he was going to for the next 24 hours. And while the venom itself wasn't likely to kill him, there were further complications. His blood chemistry had been strange, off in a way that Hank hadn't initially recognized, until he started going through the pathetically tiny amount of scientific and medical literature he'd been able to bring with him. Once he figured it out... It was so painfully obvious he was embarrassed that it had even stumped him at all. The venom, beautiful as it is, isn't actually the most interesting part, though. Hank started pacing, trying to burn off the twitchy euphoria of scientific discovery. Clint's blood chemistry is... Did you actually just describe alien poison as beautiful? Simon interrupted, face wry beneath his sunglasses. Shut up. Tony may have gone practically orgasmic over the cold fusion, but this is my field. Something's wrong with Clint's blood? Jan's voice was still tight with anxiety. She was pacing, too, now, following Hank up and down the length of the lab table. I didn't realize it at first, because I was looking for foreign substances, but he has both electrolyte imbalances and significantly reduced levels of l and I'd need to test tissue samples to be certain, but... Which means what, Hank? Steve interrupted. In addition to being poisoned, Clint has a sodium deficiency, and if his blood plasma levels of l reflect a long-term trend, instead of just not eating anything with vitamin C in it yesterday, a vitamin C deficiency, too. You mean because of the poison? Jan had stopped pacing and was looking up at him, her head cocked slightly to one side. That's not normal, is it? It wasn't really a question. No, Hank agreed. Unless he was sweating absolute buckets, there's no way the poison could give him a sodium deficiency in twenty minutes. You said the Argonians are feeding them the same thing every day, right? Jan nodded. Clint's been whining about how bland and monotonous the food is for weeks. Well, whatever it is, it doesn't have any salt or any vitamin C in it. Simon shrugged straightening from his slouch against the wall. And aside from being good for Clinton Tony's blood pressure, this means what? Before Hank could tell Simon how stupid he was, Steve had answered the question for him. Scurvy, he said flatly. If we leave them in there too long, they're going to get scurvy. Hank nodded. Exactly. Bleeding gums, injuries that won't heal... "'Wounds reopening, separation of knitted bone fractures. "'He trailed off, as it belatedly occurred to him "'that continuing with the list of symptoms until he got to inevitable death "'would probably be cruel, and also unnecessary. "'Ah, sodium deficiency isn't something to joke around with, either. "'Medicine isn't really my field, "'but I know enough about it to know that electrolyte imbalance "'can have serious health implications.' If Clint and Tony stayed under too long, they were going to die. All of the Argonians' prisoners and human laborers and guards were going to die. Of an antiquated disease you could prevent with a glass of orange juice. That thought burned the joy of discovery away even faster than pacing did, leaving only the twitchy need to pace behind. There was really nothing they could do about it, and Hank hated being helpless almost as much as he hated being useless. "'Steve's face was expressionless, jaw-tight. "'How long before it starts to be a problem?' "'Hank shrugged. "'I don't know. You'll need to ask a doctor. "'Long-term consequences aren't the immediate problem here. "'Just the looming and inevitable one. "'Doesn't it take months before people get scurvy?' "'Simon had taken his glasses off and was listening intently now. "'You know, sailors on year-long sea voyages and things.' I don't know, Hank repeated. I think so. That's not actually why I brought this up, though, except to point out it's interesting and something else for us to worry about. The real problem is the electrolyte imbalance. If this poison causes vomiting, or high fever, or anything else that causes dehydration and loss of electrolytes, Clint's in real trouble. It was ironic, really. If Clint died, it wouldn't be from the Argonian's poison but the food they were giving him. Maybe it was intentional? Some plan to make prisoners easier to control by keeping them weak? Except why make the guards and laborers sick, too? It was a waste of resources to deliberately malnourish your labor force. And that was all immaterial right now, compared with the immediate risk of Clint dying because his body chemistry was so out of balance that his cells couldn't function properly anymore. I thought you said the poison wasn't going to kill him! Jan's voice was shrill. "'almost accusing.' "'Hank winced. "'I meant it wasn't going to by itself, "'and that anti-venom wouldn't do him any good. "'We can do something about this, though. "'Not long-term, not enough, but something. "'We need to tell Tony about this,' Steve said. "'He needs to know. "'Maybe he'll be able to think of a solution.' "'It's funny you should say solution.' "'Hank found himself smiling a little.' in spite of the circumstances. If we can get salt and sugar into them, Tony can mix it up in water and give it to him to drink. That's basically what IV fluid is. Right, we'll do that. Steve turned to Simon. Carolyn and Wanda should be back now for debriefing, and Ben wants you with him and Johnny when they raid that supply convoy. Simon nodded and put his sunglasses back on. It might have been nice to know that sooner. He originally wanted Carol, but since she and Wanda were gone longer than we expected... I'm not complaining, just pointing it out. The two of them laughed, Steve with a backwards glance at Hank that told him louder than any words that he was not allowed to let Clint die. The static interference that had been affecting all of Hank's scattered pieces of lab equipment ever since Simon had entered the room vanished with them. At least he had been in solid, human form... Simon in ionic form could short out all of the electronics in a ten-foot radius. Wanda could do the same thing when her control over her power slipped. Energy-based superpowers were not kind to sensitive equipment. "'I'm working on an antidote,' he told Jan, after a long moment of mutual silence. "'But I meant it when I said it would take days. "'And even if I could do it in hours, it wouldn't—' "'I know, Hank.' Jan jumped from the edge of the table and flew over to land on his shoulder, patting him on the side of the neck. At least we know more now, and you figured out something we can do. Hank looked away, at the assortment of slides and test tubes scattered across his lab table, all of them containing tiny amounts of Clint's blood, and felt only a little better. I should be in there, he said. Then I could. Get scurvy too? "'Jan asked dryly. "'If I'd been there, I would have been able to get a sample of Argonian venom. "'Could have synthesized an antivenom right away. "'Instead, I didn't even know we needed one, "'because no one has brought me a dead Argonian yet. "'You do realize how bloodthirsty that sounds, right?' "'Hank shook his head. "'The next time someone is stung, it might not be a scratch on the arm. "'It's pure luck it hasn't happened already.' It's not as if I want Cap to cut off one of their tails and bring it home as a trophy. It's for scientific inquiry. There's only so much I can do without research materials, and making homemade explosives for Carol to smuggle over to Brooklyn is something Spider-Man can do. Clint will be fine, she said firmly. Her hand was simply resting on the side of his neck now, not stroking anymore. I'll take Tony the Salt and Sugar and tell him what to do, and he'll be fine. I've mentioned how much I hate this before, right? He asked. Repeatedly, she said, and stepped down off his shoulder, growing to full size before her foot touched the ground. Can I have a kiss for luck before I leave, blue eyes? Hank smiled in spite of himself, the basement lab seeming significantly less dreary for a moment. Of course.
4: It was freezing, his head hurt, his arm was probably literally about to fall off, and he felt like he was going to throw up, which would be about the only thing that would make this suck even more, so most of Clinton's attention was occupied by trying not to throw up. He wasn't sure how long he's been lying on Tony's cot; he didn't remember getting there, just stumbling down to the mad scientist's basement with his arm burning with such excruciating pain that he could barely move knowing that Tony was the only one down here he could trust enough to help him. Tony had gone away for a while, maybe more than once. Clint wasn't sure, because everything since Arch Captain Mamatu had bitch-slapped him with her tail was kind of smeared together. On the occasions when he came out of his pain-filled haze enough to think about something other than the throbbing misery in his arm and how hard it was to breathe, he mostly concentrated on how much he hated her. It gave him something to focus on. Clint closed his eyes for a second, trying to block out the glaringly bright light that was only making his head hurt worse, and he must have lost some time, because suddenly Tony was there, trying to make him sit up and drink something. Drinking was bad, Clint decided. He would probably just throw it back up, and then he'd feel even worse, if that was possible. Clint tried to push Tony's hands away with his good hand, his fingers numb and clumsy. It didn't do any good. Clint, you have to drink this, Tony was saying quietly. You're sick. You need to drink or you'll get dehydrated. I know I'm sick, you condescending bastard, Clint thought, but when he tried to tell Tony, all that came out was a moan. He curled up into an even tighter ball. "'pulling the blanket over his head "'and trying to pretend Tony wasn't there. "'The blanket was pulled away, "'and light assaulted Clint's eyes again, "'stabbing directly into his brain. "'Tony leaned over Clint, "'mercifully blocking out most of the light, "'and said, in just audible tones, "'Drink the nice water, Clint. "'It's an order. "'From Cap.' "'He can't tell me what to do,' "'Clint mumbled. "'He's not here.' But when Tony held the edge of the cup against his mouth, he found himself drinking anyway. Tony was a lying bastard. It wasn't water. It was lukewarm and salty, sweet, and disgusting. But by the time Clint realized that, he had already involuntarily swallowed several mouthfuls of it. He spat the last mouthful back into the cup as the taste hit him and turned his face away so Tony couldn't force it on him again. "'This is disgusting,' "'I know,' Tony said. "'It was also,' Clint realized belatedly, "'as he swallowed hard to try and rid his mouth of the residual taste and not throw up. "'Salty.' "'Suddenly, he wanted Tony's foul-tasting water desperately, "'and never mind how gross it was. "'He opened his eyes again and tried to reach for the cup, "'which Tony had moved away from his face. "'Is there any more?' Just a little, but drink it slowly or you'll make yourself sick. Already sick, Clint pointed out. That would be the electrolyte imbalance. Clint, busy draining the remainder of the salty goodness from the cup, settled for simply giving Tony a confused look. I'll tell you later. Tony patted him awkwardly on his good shoulder. Go to sleep. I can't, Clint forced out, through suddenly chattering teeth, as another wave of shakes hit him. My arm hurts and my head hurts and I can't stop shaking. You have no idea how much this sucks. Actually, his whole body hurt, all his joints and muscles a dull counterpoint to the crushing headache and stabbing pain in his arm. Tony raised his eyebrows. Are you hallucinating? he asked. He didn't think he was, but how could you tell? Maybe Tony wasn't really there, and he was talking to himself. Maybe he'd been poisoned by some supervillain, and was actually in a nice hospital somewhere, and none of this alien invasion stuff was real. His head hurt too much to try and think about that kind of thing, he decided. Plus, a hospital would have had painkillers. No, he said finally. Then I have experienced worse, Suck. Tony said dryly. Clint could almost hear the little quote marks around the word suck. Go to sleep, Clint. That was your own fault, Clint stuttered, still shaking. Fine tremors that seemed to make every muscle in his body twitch, keeping him awake when he just wanted to sleep. Doesn't count. He was pretty sure Tony actually smiled for a second, which was weird, because Clint had just insulted him. "'It always is,' he said. "'But this isn't your fault.' He hesitated. "'How bad is it? "'Do you want me to get Dr. Connors?' "'Can't trust him.' Clint closed his eyes again, and concentrated on breathing, everything around him fading out again. "'The Arch's Captain wants these back by tomorrow.' That was an Argonian voice. Clint recognized the slight lisp caused by their fangs. He instinctively held still, keeping his eyes closed and pretending to be asleep. Maybe if the Argonian thought he was just snapping here or something, it wouldn't realize he was sick. Sick humans weren't useful. Clint didn't want to know what happened to useless humans. They might fire him and kick him out of their native auxiliary And then Tony would be abandoned down here. Or maybe they'd just shoot him. That's not very much time, Tony was protesting. You've got me working on three other projects. It will take all night just to... You can drop all the other projects until you're done with this. The arch-captain thinks you're stalling. Why would she think that? They're written Oregonian. Like I said... It will take me all night just to figure out what it is, never mind how to fix it. You sure you just can't take me to whatever it is and let me have a look at it in person? So I can rig it to explode, Clint filled in mentally. I work better hands-on. No non-Argonian personnel are permitted on our ships. God, he was thirsty. Clint licked his lips then caught himself and froze again, hoping the Argonian hadn't noticed. His head still hurt, and he was still cold, but not as bad as the alternating suffocating heat and bone-deep cold of before. And his arm didn't hurt quite as much. It felt sore, swollen, and he was pretty sure it would be agony to try and move it, but at least it was no longer excruciatingly painful as long as he kept it still. There was silence for a moment, and Clint could feel himself starting to fall asleep again until the Argonian said I could translate it for you. That's I you must be busy. Tony sounded kind of strangled. I wouldn't want to If this isn't done by tomorrow, I'm the one the arch captain's going to reprimand. Which parts do you need me to read? Uh All of it? Oh, please, no, Clint thought. Just leave. He just wanted to sleep. And he wanted the Argonian gone before he started wondering what Clint was doing there, because at some point he was going to question why one of the guards was sleeping on Tony's cot. He really hoped the Argonian wasn't drawing the wrong conclusion, because the last guard and scientist who'd been sleeping together had also tried to escape together, and had been executed. Plus, having the aliens go around thinking he was Tony's fuck-buddy would just be... Okay, apparently, there were things more humiliating than having to apologize to Arch-Captain Mamatu after the scorpion-tailed bitch had hit him. Tony and the Argonian were still talking to one another, but it was completely incomprehensible now. Science stuff. He could hear the tension in Tony's voice every time the Argonian asked him a question, but hopefully he was the only one that could that, or that the Argonian would chalk it up to the stress of having to work on a deadline. It was unbelievably creepy to hear Tony talk to them. He got this apologetic tone that reminded Clint uneasily of those couple months out on the West Coast, after Tony had stopped trying to drown himself in booze, but before he'd put the armor back on. Back when he wouldn't look anyone in the eye and had once shown up at the Avengers' mansion with a bruise on his jaw and told Bobby that he'd walked into a door. Clint abruptly found himself missing Bobby intensely. It had been ages since he'd really thought about her. Everyone had said he would get over losing her, but he hadn't really expected to. He could still remember the way her hair smelled, the sound of her voice, but he didn't wake up expecting to find her beside him anymore, and that made him feel... guilty. guilty disloyal stupid argonian poison made it hard to think left him all shaky and emotional and lonely and cold and the argonian was still here babbling about propulsion systems and stress tolerance in metal clint was sure he'd never get back to sleep with him there but he might have faded in and out a little he wasn't sure After a while, Tony started to sound more relaxed. Even, once or twice, almost enthusiastic. He always did love talking about machines. The next thing Clint knew, Tony was shaking him and lifting him upright to make him drink more water. Normal water this time. He might have regretted the absence of salt if it didn't taste so much better. After he'd finished, Tony put the cup away again. "'Thanks,' Clint said, patting clumsily at Tony's arm. "'He was lucky there was someone here to look out for him, or he'd have been completely screwed.' "'I told you he wouldn't die,' the Argonian said. Isimud. "'His name was Isimud. Clint remembered suddenly. "'Then, oddly hesitant, "'The two of you are... friends?' Yes? Tony said, voice so uncertain it was practically a question. It was nice to know how highly his friendship was apparently valued. But you are a scientist, and he is a warrior. Oh, this was about their stupid caste system. So? Clint asked, at the same time that Tony said, My closest friend is... He broke off, thank God, before he could finish with something like, It's Captain America, who we're spying on you for. Yeah, Tony resumed after a moment. I don't know why they put up with me either. Perhaps you have skills that are useful to them. One of Isamud's ears twitched. Like being able to teach them something. Useful people are more highly valued. Okay, that wasn't a creepy philosophy at all. Maybe he should have stuck to pretending to be asleep. I'll be fine by tomorrow, Clint declared firmly. I'm sure you will, Tony told him absently. Esimud had his ears fully erect now, like a cat that had just seen something interesting. Science is valuable, he said slowly. "'Being able to communicate with your slaves is valuable. "'Not as valuable as honorable combat, but...' "'Tony shrugged. "'It depends on how you define value,' he said. "'In tones that clearly conveyed, "'I disagree with you, but I am afraid to say so. "'I used to make weapons. "'If you measure value in terms of dead bodies... I've probably killed more people than every Argonian warrior in this complex put together. That was a clear exaggeration. Tony might have designed a lot of weapons, and his company had probably built tens of thousands of them. But deciding that he was personally responsible for everything that was ever done with said weapons was a level of control freak behavior that, to use one of Beast's favorite words, bordered on pathological It wasn't surprising, though, given how much trouble Tony's seriously unhealthy ideas of what constituted personal responsibility had caused everyone in the past. Esimud blinked his massive black eyes. I hadn't thought of it like that. Clint heard the sound of Argonian boot heels on concrete just as Tony and Esimud both stiffened. Tony dropped his gaze to the floor, going still, and a voice snarled something in Argonian. Isamud responded with something placating and submissive, also in Argonian. Clint closed his eyes and went limp, pretending to be asleep, praying that Arch Captain Mamatu wouldn't notice him. For all he knew, she'd take one look at the aftermath of her poison and decide to come over and finish the job. It must be done tomorrow morning, Isimud snapped at Tony. I have other work to attend to. The boot heels retreated, and Ismid scurried away in their wake. Clint waited until he couldn't hear either of them anymore before opening his eyes again. So, he said, you and your alien buddy are disturbingly friendly with one another. Tony's stiff shoulders seemed to sag slightly, and he smiled at Clint. The expression looked strange on his face. Tony never smiled any more. That's one of the most coherent things you've said since you came stumbling over here yesterday and passed out on me. It's been that long. Clint reached up and rubbed at his jaw, the layer of stubble there rasping against his fingers. And now that he thought about it, he needed to pee desperately. I guess it has. Long enough for me to meet with Jan twice. Tony made a face. You don't even want to know what I owe the Rhino. Thank you, Clint said. Meeting with Jan twice meant that Tony had managed to find a way to get upstairs onto the ground floor of the station twice. Going through with the regular meetups was dangerous enough for Clint, but for Tony... It was a miracle nobody had noticed and questioned his presence on the ground floor. A miracle he hadn't been caught. Jan might have been able to escape if the worst happened, but Tony would have been caught for sure, and his stomach-turningly gruesome execution would have been inevitable. Clint shifted uncomfortably, wincing as his still-swollen arm started to throb. "'Help me up, will you?' "'Bathroom first, he decided. "'Then food.' Is there any of that tasteless protein mush? Something occurred to him suddenly, and he frowned. Hey, you gave me salt. Where did you get salt? Are they actually giving us food with flavor now? Is there any left? From Jan, and no, they're not, and there isn't. Tony smirked just a little. It turns out the protein mush is even worse than we thought. He reached for Clint's shoulders and helped pull him upright, keeping one hand between his shoulder blades as Clint steadied himself against the head rush of being upright for the first time in however many hours. How could it possibly be worse? Clint muttered. Apparently, nutrition experts lie. Consuming no salt at all is actually bad for you. And salt's not the only thing our food is missing. All right, Clint said. I'll bite. What else is missing? Vitamin C, which explains why this... He touched the still raw scar on his cheekbone. Hasn't finished healing yet, and why my ribs still feel like they're cracked. He surveyed Clint through narrowed eyes. You should take it easy for the next couple of days. You're not going to heal as quickly as you normally do. Clint sighed just when he thought that this miserable underground hellhole couldn't possibly suck more. So, when does Hank think our teeth will start falling out?
5: With the city's population reduced to a third of its normal size, the stockpiles of food and grocery stores had held out for over a month, close to two months, in some of the less populated parts of the city. But then, inevitably, supplies had finally begun running out, and the Argonians, thoughtful on carrying alien overlords that they were, had started shipping foods in through the bubble and selling it to a list of approved stores. Humans with passes, those people who weren't in hiding, were distributed a series of rationed coupons every week, which had to be handed over along with money or whatever goods were being bartered in place of money in order to buy food. Ration coupons, like passes, could be forged, but there was no way the Resistance could forge enough coupons to feed the entire organization, plus the refugees still hiding in the Waldorf Astoria, only some of whom were officially there. Hence the need to steal, or to use what seemed to be Spider-Man's new favorite word, liberate, food, and other necessities. Wanda had found that she was disturbingly good at it. It turned out that the skill she had acquired as a teenager, when she and Pietro had been on the run across Europe, hadn't left her. The Argonians had killed three ex-policemen last week, when a supply drop in the Bronx had turned out to be an empty building, set up as bait to lure them into an ambush. This time, though, they knew their target was legitimate. Jan had scouted the old warehouse in advance, and reported, finding it stacked high with boxes of dried goods and freezer lockers full of meat. Unfortunately, that hadn't meant that it wasn't a trap. "'I thought you said Jan scouted this place!' Carol shouted, as they ducked behind a pile of crates that were going to offer exactly nothing in the way of production if one of the Argonian's plasma bolts hit them. The twenty Argonians with guns weren't here, then! Wanda flattened herself to the ground, and a line of bright blue-white light punched through the crates in the space where her chest had been moments before. Obviously, Carol muttered. Think you can do something about their plasma guns? She rose to a crouch just long enough to let off a burst of semi-automatic fire over the top of the crate at the Argonians, and Wanda took advantage of the covering fire to edge sideways and peer around the side of the crates. Hex spheres only worked within her line of sight. Projectile weapons, as a general rule, were ridiculously easy to interfere with. Guns misfired or jammed, bowstrings snapped. The more moving parts there were, the less well-maintained the weapon was— "'the easier her job was. "'The Argonian plasma guns were deceptively simple and well-engineered, "'and nuclear energy was much harder to manipulate "'than the principles normal guns worked on. "'Making it fail to function properly "'without blowing up everything in the immediate vicinity "'took time, effort, and all of her concentration. "'One gun down, then two. "'The Argonian holding the now-useless weapon "'stared down at his hand with a look of shocked betrayal "'and jammed the weapon back into its holster.' The crates in front of them were smoldering now, moments away from bursting into flames. Wanda could feel the heat radiating off of them, so intense it was painful. Another plasma bolt burned yet another hole in the crates, and a piece of burning wood fell into Carol's hair. "'Damn it!' she hissed, swatting at her scalp. Wanda could smell burning hair from two feet away. "'We should.' Wanda was about to suggest that they move to a better cover, but Carol was already moving. She rolled out from behind the crate, somehow managing to keep firing the gun as she did so, and dashed to the corner of the nearest building, plasma bolts streaking through the air in her wake. Good choice, Wanda thought. These were 19th century warehouses, with brick walls over six inches thick. The Argonians' plasma bolts could melt metal, but they had a harder time going through bricks and stone. Wanda scanned the area for a new hiding place of her own, and came up with nothing. The Argonians were between the two of them and the river— which meant escaping into the water wasn't possible. Following Carol looked like her only option. Wanda took a deep breath and prepared to make her own dash for the relative safety of the next warehouse. She was halfway there when fire seared across her shoulder. She stumbled, went to her knees on the pavement, clutching at her shoulder. It felt as if the plasma bolt was still searing its way through her flesh, as if her skin were covered in molten metal. There were Argonians on both sides of them, Wanda realized, While she and Carol had been pinned down, the aliens had circled around and flanked them. She had to get up again, she knew. Had to run. She was completely exposed here, a perfect target for any Argonian who still possessed a functioning plasma gun. Carol was there, suddenly, grabbing Wanda by her good arm and pulling her to her feet. Then the closest group of Argonians was charging, and Carol pushed Wanda away, so hard she staggered and nearly fell to her knees again. "'Carol was turning to face them, gun at the ready. "'She leveled it at the closest Argonian, "'and a plasma bolt hit the weapon dead center. "'The semi-automatic exploded, and Carol staggered back, "'scorched and bloody hands held out in front of her. "'The Argonians ought to have started shooting at her then. "'Carol was exposed and defenseless, too, now. "'But instead they were aiming at the warehouse wall, "'the bricks crumbling under the sustained fire. "'It took Wanda a long, fatal moment to understand what they were doing.' By the time she realized, it was already too late. The wall behind Carol started to collapse, chunks of masonry seeming to fall forward in slow motion. Wanda took a step forward, shouting a warning, her hands coming up uselessly, and then Carol buried under a pile of broken bricks and rubble. There was a long moment of silence as the clouds of red brick dust settled, and then the Argonians began firing into the heap of fallen bricks. Plasma bolts streaked through the air around her, one burning a hole straight through her sleeve and just missing her skin, but Wanda barely noticed. Her shoulder didn't hurt any more either, the pain distant and unimportant. She couldn't see Carol. The only part of her that was visible was a single bloody hand, protruding from the pile of bricks. The hand twitched as another stream of plasma fire hit the bricks, but Carol didn't move, didn't push the bricks away and climb to her feet. No, Wanda thought, No. They had already killed Vision, killed Vance, who had only been a kid, taken Clint and Tony and locked them away. They weren't going to take Carol from her. People were always being taken from her. Her mother, Django, her real father, her husband, her children. And every time, she'd been able to do nothing but stand by helplessly and watch. Watch while the twins were erased out of existence. Watch while Simon was killed in front of her. Watch while Marcus kidnapped Carol from Wanda's own bedroom she wasn't helpless this time. The first Argonian's weapon exploded in her hands, just as Carol's gun had done, the resulting fireball engulfing her completely. Then the next, and the next, and the next. Wanda walked forward, heat and flame all around her, one concussion blast nearly knocking her off her feet, and knelt down by the pile of bricks. Carefully, one brick at a time, she began moving them off of Carol carol was covered in brick dust blood in her hair from a scrape down the side of her face once this wouldn't even have touched her she was supposed to be nearly invulnerable had been invulnerable when she'd had her binary powers carol's eyes fluttered open and she groaned putting one hand to her head then her eyes went to something past wanda's shoulder and she sat up abruptly picking up a chunk of brick and throwing it wanda turned just in time to see an argonian standing only a few yards behind her A sword in each hand. It swayed on its feet as the brick struck it, and then another piece of brick hit it in the side of the head, and it crumpled to the ground. There were a handful of Argonians still standing, those that had been smart enough to drop their plasma guns before they could go out in a blaze of glory like their companions. Wanda climbed to her feet, raising her hands again, and the four remaining Argonians broke and ran. Wanda watched them go with satisfaction, and then the pain in her shoulder which had receded into the distance until now, returned all at once. She sat down abruptly on a pile of bricks, clutching her shoulder and fighting down nausea. Carol rose to her knees, shoving more bricks off her legs with an ease that would have been impossible for a normal person. She didn't try to stand, probably because the rubble was still unstable, instead crawling over to Wanda on hands and knees. "'Are you okay? Your shoulder?' She reached for Wanda's arm, then hesitated and drew her hand back. Wanda abruptly remembered the sight of blue-white plasma bolts being fired into the heap of bricks, with Carol buried motionless beneath them. She leaned forward and grabbed for the other woman, running her hands up and down Carol's arms searchingly. Are you all right? Where did they hit you? Nowhere, I am. Wanda ignored her, continuing to pat down Carol's body, looking for the wounds that must be there. No one had that many guns fired directly at them and emerged unscathed. Fine, they didn't... How? Damn it! There. The fabric of Carol's jeans was singed black over her hip. A rough hole burned through the material right over her hip bone. What skin Wanda could see through the tear in the fabric was red and blistered, the way Carol's back had been after the train job. A direct hit. Anyone else would have been dead. Even with her powers diminished, Carol was still practically indestructible. The wave of relief Wanda felt was so intense it made her feel shaky. She wrapped her arms around Carol's astonishingly nearly whole body and held on, burying her face into Carol's shoulder. "'I thought they had killed you,' she whispered. "'I thought I was going to have to watch them take you away again.' "'I'm fine,' Carol said. "'Some bricks and a couple of burns can't really hurt me. I can still take a hit without going down for the count.' She wrapped one arm around Wanda's shoulders steadying her, and pressed her lips to the side of Wanda's forehead, just below her hairline. The feel of Carol's mouth against her skin sent a warm thrill through Wanda's body. Without thinking, she opened her eyes and lifted her head from Carol's shoulder. Their faces were only an inch or so apart, hardly any distance at all. Closing the gap and sealing her lips over Carol's took less than a heartbeat. Carol's mouth opened under her own, and her arms tightened around Wanda's back carol tasted like dust and blood and wanda could still smell the reek of singed hair from where the pieces of burning crate had landed on her and the feel of her lips her tongue the strength of her hands gripping wanda's body made her skin flush with heat the pain of her shoulder distant once again until carol reached up to touch her hair and her wrist brushed against the burn wanda gasped stiffening for a moment at the sudden flare of pain Carol went rigid and abruptly pulled back, breaking the kiss. Then she shoved Wanda roughly away from her and jumped to her feet. "'What the hell was that?' she demanded. Wanda licked her lips. They tasted like Carol's blood, and stared up at her mutely, unsure how to respond. "'What were you doing? Why in the hell did you think I would?' "'I thought you were—' Carol had kissed her first. The two of them had always been close, and she had thought— "'Carol liked woman. She had to. "'There had been the whole thing with Jessica Drew, "'and Wanda had seen the way Carol had watched her "'when she had stripped off her shirt and bra "'in that empty office building. "'Surely she liked woman. "'I was happy you were all right,' she protested. "'I had it under control,' Carol snarled. "'Who says I needed your help?' "'You were buried under a pile of bricks!' "'So this wasn't about the kiss. "'It was about the same thing Carol's anger was always about.' her refusal to accept help or admit that there might ever be anything wrong with her. They were shooting at you! So you decided to just force your fucking perfect powers and help me and the hell with what I want? Carol was shouting now, her hands balled into fists at her side. I thought they killed you! Wanda shouted back, her voice going high and shrill. I thought you were dying! And then Carol launched herself into the sky and flew away leaving Wanda there alone, kneeling on the hard concrete, surrounded by dead Argonians and debris and blinking back tears. What had just happened? Not for the first time, she wished she knew what was going on inside Carol's head. Fine! she yelled at the empty sky. I'll find my own way back! She levered herself to her feet, every inch of her body aching, and kicked a chunk of brick as hard as she could, blinking her still-stinging eyes. It did nothing to ease her frustration, and now her toes hurt as well. Wanda sighed and walked to the edge of the pier to stare down at the water. This was the docks. There had to be an abandoned boat here somewhere. There was, and she had gone halfway down the pier towards the empty water taxi when she realized that there was no Argonians left to stop her from getting the food she and Carol had come for. Maybe, she thought, smiling even though it wasn't funny. The mission counted as a success after all. She had killed over a dozen Argonians. Wanda supposed she ought to feel guilty about that, but she couldn't quite bring herself to. They had been about to kill Carol. Whatever Carol thought, and she had been so afraid, so angry. And then she had stopped them. It was the first time in what felt like a lifetime that she had lost control of her emotions without losing control of her powers. She probably ought to be pleased by that, but she couldn't bring herself to feel pride or pleasure either. Just a dull hurt, frustration. What did Carol want from her, and why the hell had she left?
3: Chapter 9 The last time Jan had made contact with Tony... The rhino had been hovering dangerously close, and she had barely had time to do more than hurriedly pass along Hank's discoveries about the poison and their dietary deficiencies and slip him as many salt packets as she'd been able to carry. Which, unfortunately, at her present size, was about three. It had been a week since then, and there hadn't been any word from Tony or Clint since. Jan had waited in Grand Central's main concourse every day at noon, without catching so much as a glimpse of either of them. Clint had been unconscious, according to Tony, feverish and desperately sick. After the third day of waiting for a contact who never showed, Jan could no longer ignore the whispering voices that kept insisting that Clint had died, succumbing to the poison despite Tony's efforts to help him. Or Tony had gotten caught on his way back to the scientist's basement and been locked up somewhere, or worse and Clint had been left without anyone to nurse him through the effects of the poison, and had died of neglect. If she had gone with Tony down into the depths of the station the way she'd wanted, she probably would have been caught right alongside him, but at least she would know. It was almost 12.30. If Clint wasn't there in another few minutes, it would mean he'd missed yet another rendezvous. It would mean that it was time for her to leave. Jan slowly scanned the room one more time. The Argonian structures that had replaced the old storefronts didn't even look strange anymore. The flowing copper designs that covered them looked delicate and artistic from a distance, harmonizing with the pink and gold marble of the station's walls and floors as if they belonged there. When all of this was over, she was never going to design any clothing or jewelry that used copper again, No copper wire in earrings, no brass studs on jeans or denim jackets, and no black, she decided, or high collars. The Van Dyne signature look was going to be pastels and low necklines for the rest of her career. As usual, this close to midday the station was nearly empty of Argonians, filled mostly by a double handful of human guards and a group of grey-clad human laborers eating lunch in the single remaining restaurant. As she watched, a black uniformed guard strode out of the corridor that led to the lower level. She would know that saunter anywhere. It was something in the way Clint moved. His stride, the way he held himself, half a dozen little things that he shared with Tony and even Wanda, though it was less obvious on her since women had a different center of gravity, put them in a potentially dangerous situation, and the three of them all moved like Steve. Jan just managed to stop herself from shouting Clint's name. She crossed the length of the concourse in moments, diving inside his collar and pressing herself against his neck, the closest she could come to a hug at this size. Hey, Clint said, don't tell me you were worried. He sounded so cocky, just like always, not as if he'd nearly died less than a week ago. Are you okay? Hank said the poison wouldn't kill you, but Tony was so afraid the last time I saw him, and it's been so long. Clint shrugged one shoulder. They pulled me off guard duty for a week, he said, sounding almost embarrassed. I'm fine now, though. Kind of tired, but Tony says it's the vitamin C thing and the salt deprivation. About that, Jan said. Here, reach your hand up. I have something for you. She unzipped the -the over-the-shoulder satchel she'd stored the salt packets in for safekeeping and pulled one of them out. Not for the first time, she envied Hank his ability to grow and shrink inanimate objects. Normally she felt that she had gotten the better end of the deal, with her wings and stingers, but being able to shrink supplies down small enough to smuggle more than just a handful of items in with her and then return them to normal size without having to grow herself... Would have been really nice right about now. Clint reached up and slid his hand inside his collar, as if he were scratching an itch on the side of his neck, and Jan slipped the first of the three salt packets into it. What's? He started, then broke off and whispered, Salt! (laughs) In tones of fierce, if quiet, glee. Peering over the edge of Clint's collar, she saw him rip the packet open and pour its content out onto his palm. What was he? Clint bent his head forward slightly, raising his cupped hand to his mouth, and licked the salt off his palm. It would have been funny if it hadn't been so sad. How desperate did you have to be for your body to crave salt enough to eat it by the handful? She must have made some kind of sound, because Clint froze then and lowered his hand, traces of salt still clinging to his skin. Christ, he said. I probably look like a junkie. He did, actually, but Jan wasn't going to tell him that. I wish I'd been able to bring something with vitamin C in it, too, but I can only carry so much, and Hank thought the electrolyte imbalance was more of an immediate danger. That's okay, Clint grinned, cheerful again. You brought me salt, and hey, my teeth haven't started falling out yet, so I'm probably still good on the scurvy department. Tony, though, he shook his head, smile fading. After a moment of silence, he said more quietly than was usual, even for their whispered conferences, he had broken ribs when he was brought here, and he says they've started hurting again. Scars reopening and knitted bone fractures separating again were one of the signs they were supposed to watch for, along with bleeding, spongy gums, bruises that wouldn't heal, and a variety of other unpleasant symptoms. Sorry I worried you guys, Clint said, after the silence had lingered just a moment too long. Jan patted the side of his neck. We knew you'd be fine. You're tough. And Hank was almost completely sure the poison wasn't fatal. Almost? It wasn't quite a squawk, but Jan was pretty sure that was only because of the need to keep their voices low. Hank's not infallible, you know. Gee, I never guessed, Clint muttered, and Jan suppressed the urge to smack the bearskin she was currently kneeling on. You might have had some kind of allergic reaction, she said instead, or started vomiting and throwing your electrolytes so far out of balance that you died. Clint made a face. Death by puking. Great. And for the record, if you ever get sick, get someone other than Tony to take care of you. Could be worse, Clint, he mimicked in a high-pitched voice that didn't sound remotely like Tony. You could be hallucinating. Jan snickered, then felt like a horrible person for doing so. I, I can't stay here very long, she admitted. I know, Clint said softly. What's going on out there? Jan told him about sending Sam out through the shield to get word out to whomever was left, and about the low reserves of food and supplies that had them raiding Argonian supply depots out of more than just a desire to be annoying now, about the way they all took turns babysitting Franklin and Valeria, though it was mostly Angela now, because she was disturbingly out of control in the field these days and silent and mournful the rest of the time, and spending time with the kids was the only thing that seemed to cheer her up. About Hank's quest for an antidote to Argonian Venom, so that no one else would have to go through what Clint had. About Steve, and the way he didn't talk to anyone anymore, until she was almost as worried about him as she was about Clint and Tony. She didn't mention her worry for them outright, though. Clint didn't need to be burdened with that, or given an excuse to tease her. She didn't mention any crucial tactical information either, and if Clint noticed that she was leaving it out, he didn't say anything. Be glad Hank and Reed Richards aren't down here," he said a few minutes later. Hank would have gotten himself slapped around by Arch Captain Mommy two months ago. Tony's creepily good at pretending to be their good little scientist pet. One of the mechanicals has practically adopted him. I'm surprised you lasted this long, Jan said with a certain amount of amusement. I was good, Clint protested. I didn't do anything to break the rules or draw attention to myself. She just hit me because she was in a bad mood and she's a bitch. It shouldn't have been surprising. Clint could be mature when he had to be, as new a development as that was. He'd learned responsibility out on the West Coast, she'd realized... During the year he'd spent as a team leader, and the West Coast Avengers falling apart had forced him to grow up even more. I wish the two of you didn't have to do this, she admitted. For a few brief and unworthy moments at the very beginning, she'd just been glad it wasn't Hank who was stuck at the Argonians' less than tender mercies. But after months spent witnessing the misery, Clint only thought he was successfully hiding. Jan hated the idea of any of her teammates spending another minute in this place. Yeah, Clint said, so do I. It probably is a good thing Reed Richards isn't down here, she said, trying to lighten the mood. She had mere minutes before she'd have to leave, and she didn't want to fly away and leave Clint behind when he was visibly downcast. He would have gone native and built him a brand new cold fusion reactor by now or upgraded them to antimatter. She could feel the muscles underneath her shift as Clint shrugged uncomfortably. Not because of that. He shook his head once, slowly. The physicists are all kept in a different location, but one of the other guards gets sent to bring them meals, and they're all dying, Jan. The Argonians have them working with radioactive stuff without any shielding or anything. Jan tightened her grip on Clint's collar, clutching the fabric in both fists. If Hank had gone under the way he'd wanted to, still wanted to, he might very likely have ended up there. Pym particles involved as much physics as they did biochemistry, with all the mass transfers and pocket dimensions, and Hank could have been dying of radiation poisoning as they spoke. Tony could have if they decided to put him to work on a different aspect of building nuclear missiles, or Clint if the Argonians moved him to a different guard shift. You don't, Clint whispered, voice barely audible. You don't know how scared I was. I was sure they were going to throw me out on the street if they realized I was sick, or just kill me so that I'd stop taking up Tony's valuable time. Jan hugged as much of his neck and shoulder as she could reach her arms around, leaning her whole weight into Clint and wishing she were full size so that she could actually put her arms around him. She found pressing herself against someone's skin like this when she was small, intensely intimate. This close, with Clint so big, her every sense was completely filled up by him, the way he smelled, the feel of his skin, the sound of his heartbeat. But most people who weren't her and Hank didn't understand that. Clint would have found a real hug more comforting. How much longer do you think we're going to be down here? Clint's voice sounded strained, like he was making an effort to keep it from cracking. I don't know, Jan admitted. I don't know.
6: Sub-Captain Kamani thought you would want to know. The sub-captain is correct, Urkala said, careful to keep all signs of irritation from her voice. Breaking and running from the rebel forces at the docks had been an inexcusable show of cowardice and lack of discipline, more than deserving of punishment, but Nurgle's method of dealing with it had been needlessly wasteful. Burakum stood stiffly before her, ears erect and quivering, full of a desperate eagerness to please that, while an understandable result of his demotion, was still pathetic to behold. Permission to depart, Ninurkala? Yes, she said. Go. Go to the Imperator and tell him that I wish to see him. Burrakum left obediently. Urkala stared at the hall's closed doors, awaiting the moment when Nurgle would stride arrogantly into the room. Her tail twitched back and forth irritably as the minutes dragged onward. Protocol should have dictated that Nurgle respond to her summons immediately, unless some vital emergency demanded his attention. By delaying his entrance, he was not just insulting her, but implying, not very subtly, that her commands were beneath his notice. Protocol should also have dictated that he at the very least inform her of his intentions to have the survivors of the botched ambush on the docks executed before carrying the sentence out. The fact that she had to learn of it because one of Nurgle's subordinates had sent her a message after the fact, of her own initiative, was perhaps the worst insult of all. Nurgle clearly did not even consider her important enough to merit the knowledge that the execution had taken place. A summons to appear before the Archon herself should have been an occasion of great solemnity, but when Nurgle finally strolled into the room, his manner displayed no difference at all. If anything, he appeared impatient. You summoned me, Archon? His tone was bored, and his tail swayed lazily as he spoke, the threat of her displeasure affecting him not at all. And I appreciate your promptness, Imperator, Ercala said, showing him a smile that bared just the tiniest flash of fangs. I would also have appreciated being informed of your plans for the survivors of your unsuccessful attempt to lay an ambush for the rebels before you had them executed. Such cowardice had to be punished, Nergal said, one ear flicking back. Warriors that lack the will to stand and fight are of no use to me. Not to us, she thought, not to Argonne, to me. They are a drain on our resources and a weak point in our defenses, he went on. An army is only as good as its lowliest soldier. Weakness cannot be tolerated. Indeed, Urkala said, her tail still by force of will, resisting the impulse to lash it angrily. The survivors of such a shameful defeat would have done anything to redeem themselves. You could have set them to guarding the human physicists so that human guards who have proven themselves worthy of being trusted can be put to better use instead of being wasted. You could have sent them on a suicide mission. Surely any warrior under your command would leap at the chance to die with honor. Our people are a shattered remnant of what we once were. Argonian lives are too precious to waste. Nurgle shrugged, the end of his tail giving a dismissive flick. The lives of cowards are worth nothing. They were more valuable as an example than they would have been alive. That might have been true once, but every Argonian life had worth now. Until they could find a place of safety, real safety, not a barely adequate source of temporary shelter like this planet, and start rebuilding... They had to husband their resources, and no resource was more precious or more irreplaceable than their terribly depleted population. There would be no Argonian Empire to rebuild without Argonians to populate it. There was a long moan of silence while Nergal stared off into the middle distance, as if he was thinking of something else entirely. Behind him, Arch Captain Mamatou's ears were stiff, rotated back the tiniest fraction as if she wanted to flatten them, and had one hand rested on the hilt of her swords. She had just enough presence of mind, though, to remember herself in front of her queen, no matter how angry criticism of her commander made her. Sub-Captain Kamani, flanking Nurgle's other side, looked angry as well, though her hands were properly at her sides. Permission to speak, Ninerkala? she said mildly. At least one of the warriors' presence had the respect to call her by her proper title, Erkala reflected. You may speak, sub-captain. I don't wish to presume, Kamani began, but there is a tactical matter that has been concerning me. You reminded me of it just now, Nin Erkala, when you spoke of setting disgraced warriors to guard the human physicist as penance. Where are we to acquire more human physicists once the ones we currently possess are dead? It was an excellent question, and one Urcala herself ought to have thought of. Sub-Captain Kamani was proving to be a talented officer indeed, and an intelligent one. Warriors under her command had successfully laid a trap for an entire cell of human insurgents in the sector of the city known as the Bronx Blast octet the sub-captain had had members of their human auxiliaries spread rumors that a stockpile of food existed in a specific location, when, in actual fact, the building had been occupied by a detachment of Argonian troops. When Erkawa had bestowed her official congratulations on her, she claimed that she had given the orders to the human auxiliaries personally, without the need to employ a mechanicos or use one of their handful of precious translator devices. A warrior so loyal to Argon that she was willing to degrade herself by speaking the tongue of a lesser species in order to better serve the Empire was a valuable asset indeed. Nurgle shook his head once, frowning. It should not be difficult. The humans are as numerous as the stars. Yes, Urkala said. So were we, once. Now our control is complete only in a handful of their cities, from which we have already taken the most skilled scientists to be found. And the human scientists were not the only resource they might find themselves running out of in the foreseeable future. Food supplies inside the shield had been exhausted, requiring them to ship in food from outside the shield, not only to feed the humans, but also, now that the original shipboard stores had been exhausted, themselves. When the time and resources needed to process Earth's foodstuffs in order to make them palatable, non-poisonous, and nutritionally complete was factored in, the situation became even more untenable. As if their hold over this miserable planet wasn't already shaky enough. We have made great process in replenishing our weapons stocks and recreating our power cores, Nurgle said smoothly. Within a year, possibly less, our fleets will be rebuilt, and we will be in a position to leave this place and return to retake Argon. Surely you want that, Archon. He leaned forward, his dark, glittering eyes fixed on her intently. Surely you don't wish us to remain a collection of miserable refugees, wandering the stars forever, mourning our vanished glory and lost home. He truly believed what he said, Urkala realized. Nergal's eyes held the light of true conviction his voice the fervor of a true child of Alulum ruthless and murderous he might be ambitious and arrogant he certainly was but he truly did wish to see argon return to them no she said i do not wish for that argon was their home the tunnels through this island's bedrock were extensive but they could not approach the scope and beauty of the caverns of Argon. The soft blue-green light of Star of the Depths moss, the inky waters of Alulum's well, and the other lesser underground lakes, the brilliant colors of stalactites. The tunnels here were all artificial. They were not even dead, for they had never been alive to begin with. Perhaps someday, she and her people would see Argon's red sun once more, would walk through those caves again, but not so soon as Nergal believed, not within a year, dearly as they all wished it. Perhaps not even within twenty years. Even if their fleet could indeed rebuild so quickly, which was doubtful in the extreme, they had made great progress, but not enough, and not quickly enough. They did not have warriors enough to defeat the usurpers. Even if they were to commit blasphemy upon blasphemy and put a blade in the hand of every Mechanicos, as well as every warrior, they would still lack the numbers needed to retake Argon. Rebuilding their fleet would not take years, it would take a generation, and there was no conceivable way that they could hold Earth that long. I do not wish for it, she repeated. But neither do I agree that killing our own warriors is the way to hasten the day of our return. We have few enough women and men to carry blades for Argon as it is. Los Angeles and Moscow have already fallen into the human's hands once more. More cities that lack shields will soon follow if the human resistance continues to gain strength. Nurgle's ears went flat, not in submission, but with rage. You are the Archon? But I am the Imperator. The army follows me. It is mine to command, and I will enforce the discipline as I see fit. You have never been a soldier, Archon. I cannot expect you to understand. Beside him, Arch Captain Mamichu nodded fiercely. One day, she was going to take great pleasure in making him eat those words. Whenever Nergal wished to dismiss her counsel as irrelevant, he mentioned her lack of formal military experience. It was true, she had not served in the army, but she had been trained in both combat and tactic, and even if she had not been, she would still have been Archon and his ruler by custom and law alike. The army may follow you, but both you and your men owe your allegiance to me, Erkela informed him her voice as cool as she could make it. She deliberately cast her gaze over his shoulder, meeting Sub-Captain Kamani's eyes. I expect you to honor that. In the future, you will discuss all punishments of this nature with me before carrying them out. Remember, a warrior is remembered by the outcome of his most recent battle, and your men have been losing quite a few of those lately,
7: By the time Carol had remembered that Wanda had no way to get back to the hotel, or any of the safe houses on her own, and flown back to fetch her, Wanda had already left. For a moment, Carol was certain that the Argonians had come back and taken her, that she had abandoned Wanda to the enemy, and then she saw the missing boat. Wanda had found her own way out of there. Carol took a deep breath, more relieved than she wanted to admit, and looked around at the destruction. The ground was littered with burned rubble and dead Argonians. Hank had spent the past two months all but begging for someone to bring him an Argonian to dissect. In all their previous battles, they had been too busy running away moments ahead of Argonian pursuit to even bring the bodies of their own dead back, let alone the enemies. Carol would likely never get a better chance. Chances were that nobody else would either. The docks were deserted right now but it was probably a matter of minutes before the Argonians returned with reinforcements. The warehouse first, she decided, to pick up all the food supplies she could carry. Then she would collect one of the Argonians. It wasn't as if they were going anywhere. Barely twenty minutes later, Carol was in the Waldorf Astoria's bar. The food having been delivered to Iguara, once the chef for Peacock Alley, the largest of the hotel's numerous restaurants, And now the Resistance's de facto supply officer, and the dead Argonian, a female, so that Hank would finally get his chance to study their stingers, had been safely deposited in Hank's basement lab. Hank had been so thrilled that Carol had half expected him to kiss her. He'd been nearly bouncing off the walls when she left him, happier than anyone should ever be about performing an autopsy. It was disturbing as hell, she decided, taking another sip of her drink. Peacock Alley's bar was running short on alcohol after two months without any restocking, and the selection was limited, so she'd had to resort to gin, rather than the whiskey, tequila, or vodka she would have preferred. Hank wasn't usually so enthusiastic. That wasn't the disturbing part, though. The truly disturbing part? was that she had just hauled the corpse of one of her enemies home as a trophy and given it to her teammate as a gift. What was next? Cutting off Argonian ears and collecting them? Carol drained her drink and set the empty glass on the bar, waving at the bartender to bring her another one. Her fingers had left dark, greasy smudges all over the glass. As soon as she picked up the new one, it would be covered in smeared fingerprints, too. She hadn't bothered to change or clean up before coming here. Was still covered in brick dust and ash and blood. Argonian and her own. Her collection of burns and bruises clearly visible beneath the grime. But the bartender hadn't batted an eyelash. He was used to it by now. She had been coming in here after missions for almost two months. To unwind. To relax. To get the taste of plasma gun ozone and Argonian fur and blood out of her mouth. Not tonight, though. Tonight, she was trying to get the taste of Wanda out of her mouth. Wanda had kissed her, on the lips, in a way that left no room for doubt about what she had meant by it. Carol should have been searching her soul over the levels she and the rest of the Resistance were stooping to, turning dead Argonians into science projects, stealing food that was supposed to go toward the city's civilian population. But no matter how much she tried to distract herself with morbid speculations— All she could really think about was how Wanda's mouth had tasted, how Wanda had touched her, how fucking high-handed and interfering Wanda was, always trying to help where it wasn't needed, and how relieved she had been when she realized that Wanda had escaped capture. Once upon a time, she would have been able to handle the entire Argonian squad herself, no problem, Even with most of her powers gone, she still had a semi-automatic weapon and military combat training. She shouldn't have needed help. She hadn't needed help. She'd only been stunned, not actually unconscious. If Wanda had given her another 30 seconds, she would have been out of that pile of rubble and in the fight again. If Wanda had given her a little credit for being the warrior she was, rather than rushing in to try and save her... She could still feel the texture of Wanda's thick, curly hair under her fingers. Carol scrubbed her hand against the battered remnants of her jeans, wiping off the soot, and picked up her glass again. The gin should have been relaxing her, but it wasn't working. She had been worried about Wanda, afraid for her. The plasma bolt had hit her and she'd gone down hard. And then Carol had been pinned under the wreckage of the warehouse, unable to defend her or see what was really happening and everything had been engulfed in a giant firestorm, and then Wanda had helped pull her out of the rubble, and seeing her relatively intact had made Carol giddy with relief. Wanda had taken advantage of that. Not content with forcing her help on Carol, she decided to force her affections on her too. With each shot of gin, she could remember the feel of Wanda's hands on her body more vividly, Remember the way her slim, softly curved frame had felt in her arms, the sensation of her tongue running along Carol's bottom lip, the way, damn it, she was supposed to be forgetting about it, not obsessing over it. Just thinking about it made her lips tingle, made things inside her body tighten and heat, and she hadn't enjoyed it. She hadn't. She had just been off-balance from the fight and being hit with a half-ton of bricks, full of adrenaline and not thinking clearly. Her glass was empty again. Carol looked up, trying to catch the bartender's eye to order herself another shot, and saw Steve reflected in the long mirror behind the bar, bearing down on her like an angry blonde tank. Her stomach sinking, Carol set down her glass and turned around to face the music. If Steve was this visibly angry... It meant that he'd found out that she'd abandoned Wanda next to the East River, a sitting duck for the Argonians. The fact that she'd been able to find a boat to escape in had been pure luck. She could just as easily have been captured or killed. You never left your team behind for the enemy, no matter what they'd done to you. But Wanda had kissed her, and all she'd been able to think about was a driving need to get away to put some space between the two of them, before she did something else she would regret. If their luck were a little worse, Wanda could very well have been dead right now, and it would have been Carol's fault. I see Wanda's come back, she said, as Steve came to a stop in front of her barstool, glaring down at her, one hand resting lightly on the bar. Not an actual threat, but a reminder that Carol was going to have to sit there and take it, She hadn't actually checked to make sure that Wanda had gotten out safely. She had just seen the boat missing and assumed. She ought to have checked. Yes, Steve said, his voice flat and very calm. She returned ten minutes ago, with a bag full of supplies for Mr. Guara. If you're here to tell me I shouldn't have left her there, I already know. Carol snapped. She folded her own arms across her chest and glared up at him. "'I wasn't thinking clearly,' she spat. "'Okay, so why don't you just get all the lecturing out of your system and then leave me alone?' "'To drink?' Steve raised his eyebrows. "'Because that worked so well the last time I did it to someone.' "'Oh, for the love of God!' Carol shouted. "'The sole other hotel resident sitting at the bar got up abruptly and left. "'The bartender had retreated to the far side of the long, wooden bar by this point.' "'having made his own retreat as soon as Steve appeared. "'I'm not Tony, all right. "'I am actually capable of taking care of myself. "'Can the rest of you honestly not tell the difference "'between liking to have a drink now and then "'and being suicidally depressed?' "'We just want to help you, Carol,' she quoted to herself. "'We don't want to see what happened to Tony "'happening to you, Carol.' We all feel so fucking guilty for ignoring the fact that he was apparently trying to drink himself to death that we're all going to overcompensate by freaking out every time you want a goddamn drink. Steve flinched visibly, his lips tightening to a thin line. That's not what I'm here to talk about. He glanced away, eyes going to the bar behind her. And then he drew in a deep breath and she was pinned under his gaze again. Why exactly did you decide to leave Wanda behind? I, Carol started, because she, there was no way to explain that wasn't humiliating, that didn't make her look either bad or weak or stupid, or like a freak. You weren't there. You don't know what she did to me. No, Steve said, I don't, which is why you're going to tell me. She came on to me, she blurted out, feeling her face burn with angry embarrassment. She grabbed me and stuck her tongue in my goddamn mouth, and, and, I'm not like that. Just because I'm tough, because I was in the military, doesn't mean I'm a lesbian, no matter what my father thinks. Carol, it's sick. It's sick and disgusting, and I don't know what she did to make me enjoy it. And if she used her powers on me, then I'm not sorry I left her there. Steve blinked. He was staring at her, she realized belatedly, his eyes wide with a sort of shell-shocked astonishment. Wanda's powers don't work like that, he said. She uses chaos magic to alter probability. She's not a telepath or an enchantress. She did something, Carol insisted. I couldn't have liked it if she hadn't done something. I told you, I'm not like that. I, I don't even know anyone like that. Except Wanda, obviously, she added bitterly. I like men. It's not natural, she went on. It- what the hell did you just say? Steve's face had gone bright red. Even his ears were red. Either he was violently embarrassed, or he was so angry that he was about to kill her. Carol honestly wasn't sure which. I like men. Women too, but- so you do know someone like that. There was a long, painful silence. Because what the hell were you supposed to say to that? He was definitely about to kill her. Or, at the very least, kick her off the team again. Carol tried desperately to remember everything she'd just said. How badly had she just insulted Steve? The words sick and disgusting had figured in there somewhere... And so had unnatural. It was just. It. This was Steve. It couldn't possibly be true. Surely he was making this up in order to teach her some kind of pompous lesson about tolerance. I've, um, never told anyone but Sam about that before, Steve said, after the long silence had become acutely uncomfortable. You can't be gay! She managed to splutter, after another painfully long moment, trying to make her voice work. Steve raised his eyebrows. Why not? There was a distinct element of offended challenge in his tone. Because, she said, waving a hand at Steve and the costume he wasn't wearing. You're Captain America. You were in the military too. You were, you know how it is. No, I don't. Why don't you explain how it is? How had she ended up on the defensive? She wasn't the one who just announced that she was gay. They frowned on it pretty heavily in the army, the last I heard. Steve heaved an irritated sigh and shook his head. They never asked us about sexual orientation when I joined up. They added that later, when I'd already been wearing the costume for a year. Nobody ever asked me during the war. People didn't talk about it, and as long as you kept things quiet, well, no one talked about it. Steve frowned, folding his arms, and they certainly wouldn't have abandoned me in enemy territory over it. I told you, I know I screwed up, Carol sighed, looking down at her hands. The burns from the exploding gun were already healing, but they were raw and red and they stung, and her hip throbbed in time with her pulse, "'as if it were still being seared by plasma fire. "'She would heal just fine, given a couple of days. "'But... "'Wanda... "'She is okay, right? "'She got hit in the shoulder by a plasma bolt. "'Someone should take a look at it. "'You knew she was hurt and you left her there?' "'It was nearly a shout, "'and somehow that made it less intimidating than his earlier calm. "'Carol had been yelled at by the best of them.' "'From her father to boot camp drill instructors. "'I fucked up, all right. "'I shouldn't have left her there, I know that. "'Excuse me for freaking out when another woman kisses me.' "'Steve looked away. "'His jaw set so tightly it was probably making his teeth hurt. "'Fine,' he said. "'You obviously know you did the wrong thing, "'and how serious the consequences could have been, "'so I'll let it go.' "'Don't do me any favors,' Carol muttered. "'Oh, I'm not.' Steve unfolded his arms, rubbing at the back of his neck with one hand. I'm doing Wanda a favor. She asked me to drop it and leave you alone. She had? Carol was torn between irritation that Wanda was once again trying to protect her, and confusion over the fact that she was. Wanda would be completely within her rights to demand that Carol be somehow disciplined for ditching her and jeopardizing the mission. Why hadn't she? It was no more than Carol would have expected from any of the Avengers. And why did she care why Wanda had tried to intervene on her behalf? But you came down here to yell at me anyway? Carol made an effort to keep the irritation and anger out of her voice, smiling at him a little. The two of them screaming at each other in the hotel lobby wasn't going to accomplish anything, except for scaring the hotel staff. You didn't show up for your debriefing. Steve muttered. Then, a little louder, I had to hear that you were back from Hank. You made him happier than I've seen him since this whole mess started. You know. Carol shook her head, staring down at her hands again, and wishing she hadn't been so quick to set down her drink. When did we start collecting our enemies' bodies as trophies? We're not supposed to be those people. When we were attacked by aliens whose physiology we still know next to nothing about— he said. Then, more softly, wars aren't pretty. You do what you have to do to win, and you pay the price for it later. His jaw tightened again, and he went on. Letting Hank dissect an Argonian doesn't bother me nearly as much as the fact that we're letting kids die for us. He was staring straight ahead, not really looking at her. He looked like he could use a drink even more than Carol could, but under the circumstances, she wasn't about to say so. Justice volunteered for this, she pointed out instead. He didn't really understand what he was volunteering for. Most of them didn't. Johnny, Clint, Tony had some idea, I think, and Sam, but... Carol raised her eyebrows and snorted. Johnny Storm is barely out of college, and I'm not sure Spider-Man's actually old enough to shave. And they've both been superheroes longer than I have. Did Steve really think he was the only person who'd ever seen a 19-year-old enlisted kid get killed in the line of duty? You couldn't fight a war without casualties. Any more than you could fight one without getting your hands dirty. Tony definitely knew what he was getting himself in for. So did I. You have to give the rest of us some credit, Cap. We all know what we're up against by this point. I know, but... Steve broke off, shaking his head. I came down here to give you a warning, not to spill my guts about my personal life and the things that keep me awake at night. Look, whatever's going on between you and Wanda, work it out. We can't afford to be fighting with each other right now. His eyes flicked to the bar behind her, then away again. And if you're going to drink, consider missions the same thing as flying. Carol looked at him blankly. I can fly just fine after a couple of drinks. It's not actually any harder than walking. As flying a plane, Steve clarified, and not the FAA eight-hour rule either, Air Force regulations, which meant no consumption of alcohol in the 12-hour period before a flight, and considering that she ran missions on a nearly daily basis, was almost the same as a complete moratorium on drinking. But arguing would just make her look unreasonable, despite the fact that her body metabolized alcohol faster than a normal human's. Why do you even know that? Steve shrugged. Tony, it applies to everybody flying the Quinjets. She wasn't even going to comment on the hypocrisy of that. And she didn't have to, because Steve's next words were, I think it's one of the reasons it took me so long to notice how bad things had gotten. He never showed up at the mansion drunk, And you are not going to show up here drunk. I have enough to worry about already, Carol. Can you please just give me this? He sounded so tired. It wasn't obvious, but Carol knew him well enough to hear the exhaustion in his voice. He was responsible for much, much more than just the Avengers now, given the way the Resistance had grown. He felt guilty about justice, was still worried about Tony and Clint, was apparently bisexual which added a whole new dimension to his very obvious misery over Tony's absence, not to mention his almost as obvious worry about whatever might be happening to Falcon outside the Argonian's shield. She sighed. Fine, Air Force regulations, and I'll stay out of Wanda's way. That part of Steve's rules, she'd be more than happy to follow. Once, Vanderbilt Hall had seemed small and
6: unimpressive compared to the grandeur of the Imperial throne room on Argonne, with its great vaulted ceiling. Now, Urcala thought she might eventually grow to like its smaller dimensions. On Argonne, the promotion ceremony for a high ranking military officer would have been performed before thousands of soldiers, enough to pack the throne room with warriors from one end of the cavern to the other. Urkala would not have cared to surround herself with that many of Nurgle's people. Here, the limited space allowed her to pick and choose who was invited to attend, and she could ensure that the warriors loyal to Nurgle were balanced by warriors she knew to be loyal to her. The most important of said warriors now stood before Urkala and Nurgle on the blue-draped platform that normally housed Urkala's throne the copper trim of her dress-blacks gleaming in the light of the hall's golden chandeliers. "'We are gathered,' Nergal began solemnly, "'to recognize the valor and skill displayed by Sub-Captain Kamani "'in the service of the Argonian Empire, "'and bestow upon her the honor her stature as a warrior has won her.'" He was perfectly dignified and composed, as befitted the occasion, but Urkala who knew him better than she could have wished, knew how deeply it must gall him to elevate to greater rank a warrior who had, if not outright criticized his leadership and tactical decisions, at least failed to openly support them. However, Sub-Captain Buricum's former position required filling, and Kamani had more than amply demonstrated her ability to perform his former duties significantly better than he had and though Nurgle had put off her inevitable promotion as long as possible, he had finally been able to stall no longer. Today, Kamani would assume full control of the suppression of resistance in the city, along with a rank that would make her the equal of Archcaptain Mamatu, her authority surpassed only by Mamatu and Nurgle themselves. With the other Imperators dead in the destruction of Argonne, That would put her only two heartbeats away from control of the entire army. Nurgle turned to face Kamani, who stood rigidly at attention before him, ears and tail stiffly erect, not a strand of her russet fur out of place. Sub-Captain Kamani, he intoned, you have been invited to assume the rank of Arch-Captain in the armies of Argon, to lead your fellow warriors in the defense of Argon. For the honor and glory of the children of Alulum. Know that to accept this honor, you must be prepared to defend your authority against all challengers of equal or lesser rank, even unto death. Are you prepared to accept these challenges? I am, Imperior Nurgle, Kamani declared, with equal solemnity. Both she and Nurgle spoke the words of the ceremony from memory. The words of the Warrior's Oath were a time honored ritual one that everyone present knew by heart, for every one of them had sworn it at least once when they were inducted into the army, or, in Urcala's case, when she had assumed the mantle of Archon. Nurgle turned slightly to address the assembled warriors. Let the record show that the candidate has so spoken. He was met with silence, as tradition called for. The warriors present were there to bear witness not just for Kamani's sake, but for their own. The oath was always sworn in front of a gathering of warriors, not just so that the swearer's pledge would be witnessed, but because the administering of another's oath was a time for all present to reflect on their own vows and obligations. Nurgle turned back to Kamani. Know that as Ark Captain, you will be held accountable for the victories and defeats of all forces under your command. Their honor is your honor and the punishment for failure may fall upon your shoulders. Are you prepared to accept that punishment? I am Imperator Nurgle. Let the record show that the candidate has so spoken. Know that as a warrior of Argonne, you are the tailbarb of Alulum, the last defense between our people and all our enemies. This is a sacred duty, besides which all personal glory is but a shadow. It was remarkable, Urkala reflected, how he could utter those words with a straight face, considering Nurgle's own confirmed history of valuing his own power above the common good of her people. But Nurgle had always been capable of lying with his face, tail, and ears, as well as his tongue. Sometimes she suspected that he even believed himself. Do you assume this duty freely, he continued, and of your own will? and swear to carry it out until all strength of blood and breath of life has left you? I do, Imperator Nurgle. Kamani drew in a long breath and took a step forward, making herself the focus of attention on the dais rather than Nurgle. I am a warrior of Argon, she recited, beginning the passage that was the ancient core of the oath. And on this day my duty begins— I will defend my authority against all challenges, bear the honor and shame of my command upon my own shoulders, and fight to the death against any who would seek to destroy Argon. I am the blade in the dark, the guard in the tunnels, the tail barb of Alula. I assume this sacred duty freely and of my own will, and swear to never falter until all strength of blood and breath of life has left me. And thus it was done. Nurgle held out one hand, and a lower-ranking soldier stepped forward to place a thick rope of braided copper in it. Before the eyes of the assembled warriors, he affixed the aguilette to the right shoulder of Kamani's uniform. As Imperator of the armies of Argon, acting with the approval of the Archon, Alulam's heir, and the guidance of her ruling council, I hereby place my trust in the honor, valor, integrity, and skill of Sub-Captain Kamani. And in view of these qualities and her demonstration of the potential to serve the Empire in a higher capacity, Sub Captain Kamani is hereby raised to the office of Art Captain. He turned to address the crowd once more, gesturing at Kamani with his hands and tail. Warriors, I give you Art Captain Kamani. Is there any who would challenge her? There was silence though Urcala observed Art Captain Mamitu's ear flick backward in irritation. In theory, any warrior present had the right to step forward at this point and challenge the newly promoted art captain to single combat, to prove her fitness for all her new command by force of arms. In practice, such a right was rarely invoked these days. Mamitu was doubtless wishing with all her heart that she dared risk threatening her own and by association Nurgles, standing within the army by doing so. But even allowing for her short temper and well-known dislike of her fellow art captain, she was not so poor a tactician as to actually do so. If she lost, she would shame herself utterly, and even if she won, to challenge one's subordinate to a duel was to lower oneself to their level and to bring a challenge against another officer in order to prevent them from being promoted to her own rank would be to reveal to all that she considered Kamani to be a threat, and would, in itself, be an admission of weakness. After observing the prescribed period of silence to wait for a challenge that did not come, Nergal turned to face Urcala. Nin Urkala, he began, and she could not help feeling a moment's satisfaction that he was, for once, compelled by ceremony and ritual to address her properly. I give you Archcaptain Kamani. May she serve you and the Empire well. There were a few more formalities, but the heart of the ceremony was over. Urcala simply stood there on the dais and observed, as she had through all of it, like some copper-decked doll. Her presence was of vital symbolic importance. By attending Art Captain Kamani's promotion ceremony, she publicly demonstrated her support of Kamani, letting it be known to all that the Art Captain had her favor and approval. But she had no practical role to play. The warrior's oath was older than Archon, older than Alulim himself, though his name had been added to it. It had first been sworn in a time when the word Imperator had indicated a tribal warlord rather than the highest rank in the Argonian army. When warriors pledged themselves to fight until their last breath, not in defense of all Argonians, but for the sake of their own kin, tribe, and collection of tunnels. Alulum had lived long after that, when the Empire had first begun to form out of the patchwork of warring tribes they had once been. He had been a warrior before he became the first Archon one Imperator among the many who had united to attempt to create a unified Argon, who had assumed control of the Imperial army after a crushing defeat, when all hope of the fledging Empire's survival seemed lost, and led them to victory. It was in remembrance of that legacy that every new Archon swore the warriors' oath, even though they had not been military officers themselves in generations. The ceremony was swiftly concluded and the audience began to file out in order of rank, those of least importance departing first. As the hall emptied out, the illusion of small size created by the press of so many in one place dissipated, and it became a large empty room again, if still nothing when compared to the vast space of the real throne room. Nurgle and Mameti were the last to depart, both of them eyeing Kamani askance while pretending not to do so. By tradition, all newly promoted Art Captains and Imperators received a private audience with the Archon, a holdover from the days when the Archon and the Commander of the Army had been one and the same. The door closed with a hollow thud, and Ercala was left alone with Kamani. Nin Kamani began. My congratulations, Art Captain. Erkala interrupted, "Your promotion was long overdue." You have already shown yourself far more fit for the position than Sub-Captain Bericum. Thank you, Ninarkala, she said, with only a hint of stiffness. You do me great honor. This is a difficult time for the Empire, Urkala continued, her eyes tuned to Kamani's expression and body language, trying to sound out as she spoke how much it might be politic for her to say. Officers of ability and intelligence are sorely needed, perhaps more so than ever before, particularly those with a grasp of our limited resources and the precariousness of our position. Yes, Ninarkala. Is it your belief that there are, perhaps, officers who lack sufficient grasp of these things? She did not name names or specify in any way whom those officers were, but in the momentary silence that followed, Erkala knew that they were both thinking of the same individuals. She did not name them either. Our continued failure to gain proper control of this world and its inhabitants speaks for itself. Failure is not a luxury we have, Ark Captain. We are all that remains of Argon. We cannot afford to throw away what is left of us trying to rule this planet without success. No, Ninarkala. Were it my decision... I would guard and cultivate our resources carefully. She hesitated for a moment, then, Ninarkala, the human scientists are not within my command, but I have seen the conditions some of them appear to be in, and the mechanicos tell me that only half of the physicists originally captured remain, and that some of those are no longer in condition to be useful. If the last of them dies before they have completed their work, if that occurs, we shall do what we have always done. We shall find another way to accomplish our goals. If there was another way, they had left Argonne and come to the only planet they could reach weak enough that they could take its scientists as their own. And such was their reduced state that even a world like Earth, with no global government and no orbital defenses, was still managing to resist them. Perhaps, she thought, wincing away inwardly from the slow feeling of dread it evoked. They would be better served by simply cutting their losses and running, leaving this forsaken planet to its original inhabitants and finding some new, more hospitable world to make their own. Moving to yet another planet meant starting the rebuilding process all over again, but she had already determined that Nurgle's fantasies of completely rebuilding their fleet in a few years were just that, fantasies and the longer they spent here, the more of their resources they wasted trying to fulfill them. Even with a new fleet, even with all the technological weapons the Empire had possessed at its height, they still might not be able to retake Argon. Those who held the planet now might easily destroy the second fleet as they had the first. They had not been able to hold Argon against them when they had had the tactical high ground, and an attack to greater numbers than a defense. Returning to Argonne could not happen within their lifetimes. It may never happen at all. She did not want to believe that Argonne was truly lost to them. The humans are an industrious and clever species, Kamani observed, her voice calm and thoughtful. She did not, obviously, have any idea of the path Urkelis' thoughts had taken. If she had, she could not have kept so composed and some of them possess great courage and even a certain level of skill in combat. In I would like to offer some of the best of my human auxiliaries, citizenship. I believe that, given the proper incentive, they would be a great asset. It was painful to think that they had fallen so far that one of their warriors would be suggesting this as an alternative to utter defeat. But the practice was not completely unheard of, It was simply very rare. She had hoped to dispense with the need to use other species' skills and labor as a crutch. It was part of what had caused their downfall to begin with. Still, in their current situation, better that the empire be diluted by the inclusion of other species than that it perish altogether. You may present me with a list of names. They will be evaluated and those found worthy will be offered the opportunity to swear the warrior's oath and enter the army's lowest rank. Art Captain Kamani smiled, the first expression other than solemn stoicism that Erkala had seen from her. Thank you, nin I will prepare a list. Urcala sighed through her nose, letting her tail droop to the floor and coiling it around her feet. It was a nervous gesture from childhood that she had never been able to shake when she dared not indulge in around Nurgle, who knew only too well what it meant and would take it for the sign of weakness that it was. If our population continues to decline, you may be making a longer list than either of us would wish. We have not been here long. The tip of Kamani's tail flicked back and forth uncomfortably and all of my warriors are overworked, tired. When the tunnels here become more familiar, when the resistance dies down and the female warriors can be excused from serving extra shifts, then there will be more children. I know how much is at stake if I cannot stem the humans' violence, but until we can, none of my warriors are willing to leave their posts. As it was only right and natural, no Argonian would willingly deprive the Empire of her blade or her labor as a Mechanicos under these circumstances. However, if all of them continued to stay at their posts to the last, there would continue to be no new births, no new growth to replenish their decimated population. They had been on this planet for nearly a third of its solar year, and in that time, not a single female Argonian had become pregnant, not even among the Mechanicos yet one more problem among many to contend with. You are not to be blamed, our Captain. None of the military is. Not for this. You are only doing as you must. Ninurkella, she broke off, her ears suddenly low and submissive. There is currently no Archon in waiting and no Imperial consort. You are not in the military. And she did not have an heir. It was a topic no one had yet dared to broach in her presence, though she had no doubt it was discussed extensively behind her back. There had been several warriors she had considered taking as consort on Argon, but now, none of them had survived the fall and the evacuation. She strongly suspected that Nurgle had had Imperator Ishulbani killed, or at least had carefully done nothing to prevent his death. One more in a long line of things for which she would never forgive him. No, Ercala acknowledged, there is not. It is a matter of state which requires great deliberation, but not as vital a one as our tactical situation. Our Captain Kamani was a good officer, but she was trained in matters of military tactics and nothing more. The fact that Ercala didn't carry a plasma gun did not mean that she didn't have her own post to stand fast at. If anything, she was less able to spare a moment of time for things tangential to her duties than any soldier. The soldiers, even those as highly ranked as Kamani or Mamatu, or Nurgle, could be replaced, their positions filled by others. She could not. With the entire council dead, there was no one to stand in for her, even on a temporary basis. Nurgle had mentioned her lack of air as well, with the same implied suggestion that it would be wise to acquire one. In his case, however, it had been a transparent attempt to remove her from the picture, at least temporarily, while pregnant and childbirth distracted her, leaving him free to pursue his own agenda without fear of her interference. She supposed she ought to be grateful that he hadn't suggested himself for the role of the hypothetical child's father. Both male and female imperial consorts had taken that path to power before, assassinating or otherwise ridding themselves of an archon once they had produced an heir together, and then ruling through their child. No, Ninarkala. Kamani lowered her eyes, her ears respectfully tucking down even lower. Then she raised her chin again, ears lifting. I will have a list of deserving humans prepared for you within an auk night she said. Shall I present the list to Imperator Nurgle as well? Erkala pulled one ear back, just a fraction. No, she said. That will not be necessary. Inducting new warriors into the army is normally within an Imperator's purview, yes. However, granting citizenship to non-Argonians is the sole privilege of the Archon. Yes, Nin-Arkala. Erkala smiled, rotating her ears forward and letting her tail curl up over her shoulder. It felt odd, stiff. For so long now, all of her smiles had been false, expressions assumed to placate Nergal, or hide the fact that he had succeeded in angering her, or worn in public to encourage good morale. Now, when she wanted to offer someone a real smile, it felt forced and strange. You have done very well in your former position, Art Captain Kamani. May you serve the Empire just as well in your new one. You may return to your duties now if you wish. I will await your suggestions. Kamani saluted with her hand and tail, and departed, and her was left alone.